protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Everyone is afraid of pain. No one wants pain to rule over their life. And you don't want the negative side effects of aspirin, ibuprofen, or prescription drugs. They can lower immunity and cause dependency. Is there a safe alternative? I'm herbalist Wendy Wilson, and I prefer willow bark and meadowsweet herbs to control pain, fever, aches, and inflammation. God's herbs are good, and you won't be disappointed. Call Apothecary Herbs for pain or extra strength pain relief formula, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International, 704-875-8010 or online, thepowerherbs.com. thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes the nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International, 704-875-8010. Or online at thepowerherbs.com. One, two, three. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. Magical engineer Frank and I are here to, um, yeah, give you important information. You just can't live without. That's what we like to do each and every show. we got a great show. We're going to be talking about um, feet. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about the mechanics of your feet. <laughs> and, yeah, we're born to run. And uh, we're also going to be talking about congestive heart failure if we get time. Um, and also um, leg veins, if we get uh, enough time in. So we got lots to talk about and a quack report. Um, but before before we get into all that, coming up Thursday, this Thursday on Herb Talk, we're going to be talking, we're going to have a special guest. We're going to be talking with um, the inventor of out-of-the-park 
uh, barbecue sauce. It's uh, it's an interesting uh, culinary uh, sauce, and uh, if you haven't tried it, you should. Anyway, um, we're going to get the lowdown from um, the folks at Out of the Park Hot Sauce. Uh, they're going to be with us on Thursday, so we'll get their story and how they got started. I think it will inspire people. You know, if you've been thinking about starting a business, hmm, listen to these guys, how how they did it. You know, it's great stuff. So we're going to be talking with um, uh, the folks there. We're Scott. He's going to be our guest. Um, also, let's see, coming up, goodness, because we're going to be in October. Don't forget, we're going to have Dr. Carly here on the 21st, and we'll see what else we can conjure up for October in our cauldron of things. <laughs> All right, we've got a quack report, but before we do it, a big salute and Semper Fi, praying for our righteous men and women in uniform. And I'm praying for righteous leadership. I am. I'm praying, you know, uh, that God just, you know, rise up, give people backbones and start saying no to this tyranny and get smart. And uh, it's it's our job to do that. It's his will if he does it, but it's our job to do that. If we come together, seek his face, find the time, because it grows short. So without further ado, let's do the quack report. All right, well, we got the quacker. Oh, the Ebola thing is in the news again. Poor Liberia. They are having problems in Western Africa, and we're going to have to lift them up in prayer. Uh, According to the Washington Post, and uh, the WHO has announced um, a new program to help deal with this outbreak. Um, Probably why some military troops were sent over there. What they're going to do is relocate sick people. with or without their permission, uh, to what they call the community care centers, uh, which only offer a rudimentary care. I believe it because I watched this. Um, I watched this uh, show on PBS that they went and they followed these WHO uh, doctors around to a lot of these um, cities, these little towns, and picking up patients and taking them to their makeshift hospitals. And they don't give them any nutritional support. All they give them is drugs to stop vomiting. That's it. That's it. And a bed, maybe. A lot of them were just laying on the ground. Uh, well, here's the problem. They, they, they're, they have about 70 of these community care centers uh, throughout uh, Liberia, but they only have about 15 to 30 beds at most at each of these centers. So according to the CDC and the World Health Organization, they expect 1.4 million cases by January. So that's like one bed for every 1,000 people. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, the numbers just don't work out. The numbers just don't work out. And I, I think uh, we, we shouldn't be in denial uh, here in America if we don't think that this disease, if it gets to the million mark over there, won't impact America or anywhere else in the globe. So uh, get your pandemic kit now, is what I say, you know, while supplies last. Thepowerherbs.com, if you want to know where that is. All right, last but not least in the crack report, um, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of some of these natural products that you find at your health food store, and um, one of them is Annie's. Have you seen Annie's products? You know, a lot of them are pretty good. I like her um, her uh, oil and vinegar salad dressings. Um, not all of them, but some of them. Um, so they don't have any GMOs. They don't have any junk. 
in them. And uh, here's something uh, just sad. General Mills just bought them out. Yeah, General Mills. So uh, $820 bucks for Annie's, and she was worth every penny, I want to tell you. But what are they going to do to those recipes and those products? So keep your eyes peeled. You know what I'm saying? Read the label, even if you already know what's in it. No, no, no. New owner, read the label. Keep your eyes peeled out there. And that wraps the quack report. All righty. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Um, yep. A lot of people ask me what I do in the face of pandemics, and I say, well, I boost my immune system. I take my herbs. I use broad-spectrum ones, targeted ones. You'll find all that stuff in the pandemic kit. But I also pray Psalms 91 for what I can't do. I know the Lord can do. So um, you want the Lord to stand in the gap. And he says he'll protect you from the plagues and the um, pestilence, right? So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to get near the Lord, stay there. You know, tell him to hide you under the shadow of his wings. Seriously. So none of that stuff touches you or your dwelling. He promises that. So I encourage you to get in the word and, you know, pray it up. Mm. All right, we're going to talk about our feet today, a little bit about our feet, because we was born to run, folks. <laughs> you know, modern times, they've promoted leisure more than any time in history. And, you know, technology and modern inventions have delivered, you know, some very convenient devices. So, thank goodness not everyone is, you know, sitting around neglecting to exercise their common sense or their body. And the human body is really built for movement. And if you um, are, if you're thinking about going into running, well, you know, we're built to go the distance. If you're a runner, you already know that. Some people are kind of reluctant to get into jogging or running because they fear of wearing out their joints. And I understand that. I understand that. And it's true that while running a marathon, about 90% of the runners are going to sustain injuries. So you have to wonder, how did the ancient people run great distances in just a thin pair of sandals without any injuries? I want to know. Well, do you suppose the invention of the sneaker has promoted a poor running technique and the injuries? I don't know. Do you think? So is it possible that the association of running and painful injuries is really a new concern and really didn't impact ancient man. So what can we learn from the past that can make our future healthier and safer? Let's, let's just find out. I was very curious about this. Now, according to Harvard biologist Daniel Lieberman and biologist Dennis Bramble of the University of Utah, humans were born to run, and um, we got really good at it, according to them. Uh, being able to run was a life-saving endeavor. Uh, you would need to run fast, you know, as a defensive strategy, and you also need to, you know, catch your dinner. So you got to be fast. So most four-legged animals can't outrun man. In, well, they can outrun man in a short distance, but not with regard to a long distance. Humans are designed to outrun nearly all animals. That was kind of surprising to me. 
I, I never thought of that. So when animals overheat, they cool off by slowing down and panting, you know. <laughs> That's what they got to do to cool off. So humans, well, we cool off by sweating. And there's, a, you know, very little body here to hold in the heat. So this offers humans the advantage of endurance. So the biologists believe that early man engaged in Distance running, chasing animals to overheat and tire them, and then, you know, move in for the kill to eat them as food. Now, primitive hunting inventions came later, making that job whew, a whole lot easier, right? Well, let's talk, let's look at the feet. Let's, let's just look down at our feet for a minute, because another interesting observation, which was documented in the February 2009 journal of the Experimental Biology is the human foot. It's designed to run with less effort. Uh, so our feet, if you compare them to animal paws, make running more efficient according to this report. So humans have a shorter toe than the animals, and when you increase the length of a toe by 20%, it doubles the mechanical effort it needs to run, you know, what it takes for you to run. So man's big toe is straight, and it's designed as a push-off for running, but an ape's toe, you know, is off to the side. So the design of, the man's, of man's feet, his foot, and legs all lend themselves for great movement and speed. No animal has this design. So, for instance, chimpanzees and apes don't have the ligaments and the tendons humans have, which are essential uh, for endurance running, and this design also helps man keep his head balanced as he runs, and also to use his uh, glycogen stored in his muscles for, well, an easy 20-mile run. How about that? Yeah. So why all the injuries then, you know? Uh, so if, we, we, if we're designed to run, why do runners sustain these injuries? Endurance running needs to start early to help the body develop those ligaments and tendons for support for that exertion. So waiting to run in adulthood is going to stress these areas. So our ancient ancestors did not run on artificial surfaces in scientifically designed and engineered sneakers. No, they ran barefoot or in sandals. Uh, so introducing the artificial surfaces to running is really going to change the biomechanics of running, and it appears not for the better. So the experts recommend that adult runners avoid the strenuous runs and tend to build up to the long-distance runs over a long period of time. They also recommend adopting the strategy for you know, of a, of a long-distance runner, and a long-distance runner would you know, periodically take walking breaks. So you should do that. So running on a variety of surfaces in simple shoes will help build up the foot and the leg strength. And running on a variety of uh, simp in simple shoes, you know, make the shoes simple. Uh, and uh, make sure the surfaces, you know, are pretty natural surfaces and they're not, you know, astroturf. So uh, runner Christopher McDougall, He's also the author of the book Born to Run. He says that he was often plagued with running injuries and then studied the running techniques of the Mexico Terra Humera Indians 
And uh, for three years now, McDougal says he runs without the Americanized running shoe, and he has corrected his form and has prevented further injury. So, yeah, makes sense, right? No sweat. That's what I say. Well, you know, our bodies were born to sweat, too. So we have glands, uh, apocrine and eccrine glands designed to release fluids to cool us off, to release toxins. So we sweat when we exert, when we're nervous, and when the weather's hot. So these events stimulate the sweat glands, and they release fluids from the glands through the skin's surface. Now, modern man blocks that unpleasant sweat and smell with cosmetic products, you know, antiperspirants and deodorants. So the health problem that we face is that the ingredients in these types of sundry items can clog our glands and trap the toxins in. So the average antiperspirant or deodorant will have wax liquid emollients, which, you know, block the gland from sweating, and aluminum compounds, which out of all the ingredients has the highest in volume. So how does the antiperspirant block the sweat? Well, the aluminum ions are taken into the cells, which line the gland duct. And according to dermatologist Dr. Eric Hansen of the University of North Carolina's dermatology department, moisture flows in with the aluminum ion, and it swells the ducts shut. So sweat can't be released. So the average over-the-counter antiperspirant contains between 10 to 25% aluminum, which decreases sweating by a minimum of 20%. So normally, you know, the liver and the kidneys will help remove toxins from the body. However, if those organs aren't working properly or if they're in organ failure, that's 2.5 million sweat glands that you should be using as a backup, but you're using the antiperspirants. Uh-oh. So keep in mind that scientific research has discovered that the aluminum salts in underarm products can also damage your DNA. So that's a concern. We all have it. And, you know, does this stuff get into your bloodstream? You ever wonder about that? You know, our skin is our second kidney. It absorbs what you put on it. So sound reason would dictate that if the average antiperspirant can change or damage your DNA, then that means that chemical ingredient may, and, that, and many sundry items, are, you know, going to be hazardous to your health, you know? So the cosmetic industry has over 10,000 chemicals at their disposal, and many of them are carcinogenic, and many disrupt our endocrine system and harm our reproductive system. So what is a consumer to do? Well, health authorities and the FDA say the additives are safe, and consumers are not at risk of disease like cancer or Alzheimer's. However, a study which appeared in the Journal of Inorganic Biochemistry in 2013 found aluminum in the nipple fluids of breast cancer patients. So these patients were compared to healthy women with no history of cancer, and the study opened the door uh, to the question, does aluminum in antiperspirants and even vaccines cause breast cancer? So, if, you know, if, we could, if, it, if it could be researched and proven, you know, this would be great, right? Right? The, these patients, you know, are, 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 are the stepping stone to maybe some truth here. So the study did open the question, the door, uh, 
do these things uh, pose a problem for breast cancer? So if, if it could be researched, you know, that would be great. But I think that kind of research is discouraged or buried, you know, because it's going to have legal ramifications if they proved it does cause cancer. So there is one article, though, that was uh, on, on uh, PubMed, which researchers uh, wanted to see how a breast mammary epithelial cell, that's a breast tissue cell, uh, reacted to the type of aluminum you find in antiperspirants or vaccines, and they reported that there was a loss of independent cell growth followed by mutation of the DNA. So the study concluded that aluminum encourages a sequence of events to trigger or induce stress on the cell, creating an abnormal cell. So they claim the aluminum is not a direct cause of breast cancer, but it can be a contributing factor by weakening um, the cells. Now, another study measured to see if any aluminum from antiperspirants made its way into breast milk, and it did. It was there. Of course, if it is in the blood, you can ascertain it's going to be in other body fluids. So consumers need to be careful of any cosmetic products used as heavy metals are also found in lipstick. So there was a study done by the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health. They tested commercial lipsticks for dangerous levels of heavy metals and toxins. And out of 30 popular brands, they found products to contain about 20% metals and toxins. Uh, to, and it would be a health hazard if you're using them on a daily basis. So their findings were published in the Journal of Environmental Health Perspectives. So goodness gracious, you know, a little lipstick, what can that hurt, right? Well, apparently a lot. Oh, I don't know about you, but I feel like I just need to get, you know, back to the basics, back to Eden, if it were uh, possible, you know. Uh, the more I read about how toxic a majority of products and foods are, uh, I'm, I'm going back to living more simply, so our ancient ancestors used essential oils to help them smell sweet. And um, any cosmetics they used were basically plant-based. And majority can, again, be found at a lot of your organic markets. Okay, so look for them. Even natural hair dyes are there. And, you know, hair dyes that are commercial, you know, the standard stuff that you go down and you pick out, um, not the plant-based kinds. I mean, they, they, can, they can influence your vision. They can cause vision problems. So I would go with the natural. Now, for a deodorant, you know what I use? I use a mineral crystal or a mineral spray. And I like them so much that I now offer them in the herb shop, apothecary herb shop. So you want to look for them. They're, uh, look for them. They're called Crystal Lux. And we have them in a solid push-up stick, and they come in a small and a large size. And we also offer in a spray, so you can get it in a solid push-up stick or a spray. And, um, and you will still sweat, but you won't smell, okay? So it's not going to block your gland ducts at all. So the solid sticks, though, will last one to two years. You're going to save a ton of money on antiperspirants. Um, so I say, you know, why risk yourself to heavy metals and the possibility of disease like cancer when there's healthier options out there? Also, 
Just like our bodies are designed to run, so is our immune system designed to encounter and neutralize pathogens. So when you're using antibiotics and antiviral drugs, this hinders this process and creates an immune system that can't run a marathon. So each of us has to do our due diligence to protect and support the body God gave us and not to corrupt it. So now's the time. Change to a simpler and healthier lifestyle and cleanse away those heavy metals, those pharmaceutical residues, those radioactive particles that are lodged in your body. And you can do that with my organ cleanses. So uh, use my immune boosting formulas for the cold and flu that's coming, you know, this fall. I'm going to get it. Um, you know, so build, you can build up a lifelong immunity that way, you know, the kind that nature intended you to have. So call Apothecary Herbs. You can order your organ cleanse package. It comes in a standard or an upgrade. And you can get a pandemic kit for the, or a cold and flu pack. Or don't forget the Dr. Mom approved My Three Amigos for Children to keep the viruses away. So you can call now, toll free, at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, international 704-8850-277, or you can visit thepowerherbs.com, thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. Hey, you can get there typing in HerbTalkLive.com. That's right. If you're serious about herbs, you need apothecary herbs. Let's not mess around. No, no, no. All right. So we're going to be talking with Thursday. Don't forget. Let's see. Scott uh, Granai. I guess I pronounced his last name correctly. I hope so. Granai. He makes out-of-the-park hot sauce. He and his wife, Beth, I should say, Beth is involved. She's the woman behind the man. And, um, but Scott's going to be talking with us on Thursday. And um, talking to him off the air, he was such a delight, you know. He's just easygoing. Um, anyway, so he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna tell us how he <laughs> he discovered a hot sauce nobody knew existed out of his refrigerator, just mixing a bunch of stuff together, you know. <laughs> I love it. You know, mom and pop uh, businesses, the cottage industry. I think it's it's here to stay. I'm sorry, this is this is America, and this is how people get started. This is how they grow. This is how they share. This is how they just, you know, profit and prosper. And that's what America is about, right? Americans do things different. They don't always do it the same way. Everybody else does it. We find a way. Well, all right, I know I'm coming up to a break. No need to remind me, and, um, and uh, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to be talking about um, your um, supplements out there because a lot of people ask me all the time, what's the big deal? What's the difference between all these brands can be confusing? And uh, so we're going to shed some light on, you know, what to look for, you know, so you can come home with some really good stuff. And also we're going to be um, talking about uh, some ancient things as far as whereabouts the uh, – history of chemistry came from, you know, that science really relies on. And uh, we're going to talk about that. And we may have time to talk about veins and how to avoid varicose veins and that kind of stuff. I have congestive heart failure here too, but I don't know if we'll fit it in this time. We might. We might. I don't know. Maybe Thursday. I don't know. We'll see. We're going to be talking with uh, Scott and uh, his hot sauce, but uh, we'll, we'll try to sneak it in. We will. 
But we're going to talk about your supplements out there. Um, you know, sometimes the stuff that they have on the market kind of similar pressure-treated lumber, in my opinion. And I guess i got to take a break. Is that what you're sending me to, a break? I'm going to a break. I'll be right back. In the day we sweated out on the streets of a runaway American dream. At night we racked the mansions of glory and suicide machines. Sprung from cages on highway, man, from wheel fuel and chicken, stepping out over the line. Oh, baby, it's time to rip the balls from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. We gotta get up while we're young. Cause trans black us. Baby, we were born to Pumping life into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. Don't make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704 704- 875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Henry Ford, the automobile. And herbalist Wendy Wilson? Well, discover for yourself. Listen to Herb Talk live. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. (laughs) 
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom about um, some of the, we're going to look at comparisons in your supplements out there in the market, you know, um, how are they making this stuff? You know, are, 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 the, are they baking it? Uh, are they pasteurizing it? Are they distilling it? Are they pressure treating it? How do they make the products they serve as supplements? So, um, you know, if, if you're building up on your nutritional stores, you know, this is going to be important to you. You know, it's sort of like, you know, the, the same thing with people looking at uh, milk, you know, um, the pasteurized, homogenized versus the organic milks. It's very different. Once you process something, it changes it chemically, and so you're getting something very different. Um, so when I look at a lot of products, especially those herbal liquids that we often call extracts or tinctures, you, you have to know how they're processing it because if, they, if they're using a forced extraction pressure method, that's basically similar to pressure-treated lumber. And what happens is it creates a lot of friction and heat. And uh, herbs are very heat-sensitive. So um, it, it changes them chemically, weakens the potency, and so um, you're getting very, in my opinion, an inferior product. 
So pressure-treated lumber actually was invented 70 years ago by Dr. Carl Wollman. He discovered that if he forced preserving chemicals into the wood at a high pressure, it would make the wood last longer and make it less attractive to termites. So how did Wollman achieve this? Well, he placed wood in a cylinder. It was a holding tank, and he depressurized it. He removed all the air. Then he filled the tank with a chemical preservative at a high pressure and forced those chemicals into the fiber of the wood. Now, this is similar to what they do with the forced extraction method, making herbal tinctures. And so uh, basically what happens is uh, he drains the tank, gets rid of the unused chemicals, and then removes the wood. So the pressure-treated wood is more expensive because it resists fungus, boring insects, and it about lasts about 20 years longer. So, but when you're talking about your herbal, huh, herbal tinctures, you don't want that pressure. You don't want that friction and heat because uh, what you get is, is uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, less potency is what you're getting. Um, and the same thing with your, your milk. Uh, when you look at your pasteurized milk, they, you know, they do it with the high temperatures to kill the bacteria. Um, they either flash pasteurize it at high temps for about 15 seconds, or they steam pasteurize it uh, to kill E. coli and salmonella and maybe listeria uh, viruses and pathogens that you can find in uh, beef. Um, they m- may even irradiate it uh, with gamma rays to hinder foodborne microbes from growing. Or they could do a high, ultra-high pasteurization that's like 280 to 302 degrees Fahrenheit for just a few seconds. So it will kill salmonella at about 180 degrees, and, and it will kill E. coli at over 160 degrees Fahrenheit for several minutes. So the flash heat pasteurization, ultra-high pasteurization, doesn't have the heat there long enough to kill those harmful bacteria, um, but what it does remove is the good nutrition. So it kills all the good nutrition, the vitamins and stuff. Um, now let's look at some distilled methods, though. Now some supplements, like especially in your homeopathic realm, they're going to be distilled, offering, you know, the essence of the original ingredient is basically what you're getting. So in the distillation method, it separates mixtures and changes components within the mixture. So in liquids, for instance, you will be, they'll be heated to force components, which may have, you know, different boiling points into a gas phase. And then the gas is then condensed back into a liquid form and then collected. And that's basically your homeopathic liquid. So it represents a process uh, of, a, of a double distillation where it can, they can further separate the components, but um, they call this purifying the properties. So many products are made by distillation such as your gasoline. Distilled water becomes mineral-free. Also alcohol, uh, paraffin, kerosene, and other products through distillation. So distillation is believed to first have been used in the first century by Greek alchemists working uh, in Alexandria. So the distillation 
Uh, they distilled water is believed to have been made as early as 200 AD. And Egyptians used distillation extensively in their experimentation. Um, they wrote about it in some of their books. Um, also, a German alchemist uh, wrote about uh, this distillation. It was called The Art of Distillation. Uh, and uh, he believed to have evolved this process from alchemy which is a mix of science and basically witchcraft. So later, alchemy evolved into what we now call science chemistry. And all you have to do is really look at your vaccines, which are laced with mercury, um, which is basically a favorite metal uh, of alchemists. Uh, and you can see uh, what's going on there. Uh, so now getting back to your forced extractions there uh, in your supplement world, uh, basically, you know, they're going to be in stores. Uh, it's hard, you know, just reading the label. You can see what's in it, but how did they make it? How are these herbal extracts or tinctures made? Um, so you're going to have to actually call uh, the manufacturer. You don't want the recipe. You just want to know, you know, was there any heat involved in the process of making this product? That's the big one. Now, there are some other questions. There are inside questions in the industry of making um, herbal liquids as supplements. Uh, you can check out the list. We do have a downloadable question list that you can print off for yourself. You go to thepowerherbs.com and go to the About Us page, and there's, uh, it's called Nine Questions. And you can, it's in a PDF or a Word document, whichever you want. And this will help you figure out if a product you were thinking about buying is quality or not. So it's all about, you, they can start out with a really great ingredient, you know, 100% organic, but, you know, what they do to it after that, you know, the end products, which you're also wanting to know about. So basically natural aging processes rather than the forced extraction process is going to be much better for your herbs. It's a it's a gentler way to extract the photochemicals out of the plant without heating them, fractionalizing their compounds. So it keeps it a whole food type of supplement, basically. So um, sort of like, you know, aging wine and then cold pressing it. Uh, so there is an aging process that really does help the potency of the product. And unfortunately, when companies go to the forced extraction method, what it does is it helps them um, shorten their turnaround time when they want to fill orders and they can make tinctures in a day whereas opposed to making them in 30 days. So there's a time factor there and you know it's a bottom line thing but then again what are you really getting? Is it going to really work for you? So uh, I kind of like it the old-fashioned way. Uh, you get more control. It's, it creates almost like a full-bodied herbal tincture when you naturally age and cold press. And I, I show people how to, they can make their own tinctures at home. Um, there's a chapter in my book, The Power Herbs, if you want to know how you can make some tinctures for your family. It's not rocket science, but it is time-consuming and messy. So if you're interested, you can pick up a copy of The Power Herbs book. It's just $14.99, and you'll have 400 pages of herb secrets there. And it's a PDF so it's an ebook, and so you go to the powerherbs.com website and click under books and newsletters, and you can you can figure out how to get it that way. So the Power Herbs book is going to help you learn how to do that. So, so 
sometimes, you know, the tried and true, the old-fashioned way, what the ancients did tends to be better. Uh, yeah, uh, the modern way could save you time, uh, save you money, uh, at least the manufacturer. But, you know, what, what, is the, what is the end result? What is the product at the end? You know, you had an organic ingredient to start with, but now you've heated it. Okay, so you've changed it chemically. So you've lowered the potency. So now you've got to take, what, 10 times more of that stuff to get anywhere. So, you know, check out the nine-question sheet, and you will be amazed at um, how savvy you're going to be when you go and evaluate a lot of the supplements on the market there because you deserve good stuff, whether you buy from apothecary herbs or not. You know, you worked hard for your money, and you should get some quality stuff. And with all these little fine mom-and-pop, you know, vitamin uh, manufacturers being bought up by big pharma, you got to make sure. you got to make sure you're getting what you uh, are paying for. All right, so we're going to talk about a little bit about um, some marketing here because that goes, you know, hand-in-hand hand with what you're looking at on the shelves. Um, you know, I, I was uh, in my 20s. And I caught this interview of a lady who wrote a, a, you know, hot seller, number one bestseller. It was, you know, it was, it was a romance novel, okay? But she was being interviewed, and the uh, interviewer asked her, you know, what makes a bestseller? You know, you know, you, here you are, you're watching this, you're probably thinking, oh, it's, it's characters, it's plot, it's, you know, this, it's that, and, you know, writing skill, and it's, it's the picture on the cover. It's none of that. Uh, the, the author, the best-selling author, said it's marketing. Marketing makes a bestseller. So um, when you go out there in the store, just remember that when you're buying anything, you know, what's hitting you to pick up that package? Was it the marketing you saw that ads for it? You know, what is influencing your purchase to buy that item? Because we're persuaded through marketing to select, well, even our next president of the United States, right? We're going to be marketed to when it comes to voting in for Congress here soon. We've got a couple of them up for vote here in North Carolina. I don't like neither of them. But uh, we're persuaded by marketing, and that's what it is. We're influenced by that. There are certain techniques in the marketplace and even in politics and even in your workplace Everywhere, you probably don't even notice it, but these all influence your decision. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, they manipulate you. They really do. So, and what of these tactics, which one of these tactics are used? Let me just ask you, what do you suppose some of these tactics that they are using to get people to accept genetically modified foods? Let's, let's take a look and see. You know, you're probably saying, oh, no, no, I'm never going to buy GM foods, right? Right? Well, we've got people, Americans, wanting to go over and serve with ISIS. So <laughs> what's influencing them? Okay, let's check out the, the marketing behind everything. Uh, the marketing industry, king of marketing tactics, really, is to sell you what you don't need. Okay, remember that the old school marketing often used a salesman who would ask you to voice your objections so he could counter them. So uh, 
taking the king of marketing a little step further here, we, we have tactics that will compel you to accept and make purchases on what you know is wrong. You will convince, they will convince you that wrong is right, basically, and that you're living in times where you see that all the time. It's evident. Right's wrong, wrong's right. So how does marketing accomplish this? How does it get past your psyche, your conscience, to do that? Well, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a continuous exposure to psychological marketing techniques that are called desensitizing, jamming, and converting techniques. So the truth is separated from the equation, and you're manipulated to think the lie is the truth. So let's get down to it. 1988, there's two men, Marshall Kurt and Hunter Madsen. They used this psychological marketing technique, and they wrote about it in a book. It's called After the Ball. So the book is essentially, and it's online. You can look it up there. And um, it, it, it changes your mindset. It changes the mindset of the American people from opposition to acceptance on any particular topic, okay? So the uh, author Marshall, Kurt, uh, he's a Harvard grad. He's a researcher in neuropsychiatry. Hunter Madison, he holds a Ph.D. in politics from Harvard, and he's an expert in public persuasion and social marketing. So in a nutshell, these two get together, and voila, it's uh, their whole system of manipulating people to accept and buy and want what's not good for them. So they change the way you think and feel by breaking your current negative associations with what is objectionable and replacing them with positive associations. So they, they prey upon your doubts and they exploit them. So the new technique to get you to accept something you know is wrong and that you don't need is to not talk about it and act nonchalant and normal as possible. So once you accept that, then one by one, the other differences that you may normally repel you become accepted. So they wear you down morally, essentially, and you are, in essence, being seduced. How do you like that? <laughs> oh, yeah. And their book, it spells it out. So how do these psychological tactics work in order to desensitize you? Well, the media pounds you with images on what the public believes to be wrong. However, it is presented in the least offensive way. So the attitude of the masses then becomes, oh, well, you shrug your shoulders, let's move on. So within uh, the new marketing, they also employ fear, and not just fear of the unknown, but terroristic type of fears. So this is intended to suppress any dissent that the public may exhibit. And you are afraid to speak out, basically, to voice your opinion or concern. You become afraid to speak out and support, let's say, your faith, for instance. So political correctness and the hate speech laws were launched on this tactic known as jamming. And the real goal in all this is to convert you from being an opponent to being a supporter of all that is wrong. So how can they accomplish this? Well, they use psychological tactics to change your emotions, your mind, and your will through propaganda. An example is Planned Parenthood, right? 
this is an organization that has, and well, really nothing to do with parenting, right? It's all about stopping that, right? Um, it really goes at the moral conscious there. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but, you know, there's some, there's some things wrong with how that organization operates, and I, I hope you would check it out. So, um, but let's look at some classic brainwashing. This conversion of the American mindset is planned psychological attack on you. It's fed through propaganda, and um, the citizens are, are fed propaganda basically by the spoonfuls uh, through media and social networking. This is designed to overthrow basically any kind of society they want, uh, African-American society, the Jewish society, the Christian society, whatever they want to overthrow, this is how they do it. They take all the moral objections this great country has and they corrupt them all. This is known as classic brainwashing. The successful example would be after Obama's first election, the office, um, many believed he was going to make their mortgage payments. Remember that? Propaganda, right? So you deny the truth is basically uh, what all this does. Um, they rewrite history and they put in lies. They confuse people. They keep people off their guard, off balance, so you don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, this really upsets people. They Americans, uh, they are filled with doubt. And um, then they, they, they kind of aren't sure if the history they were taught was true and accurate, see. Um, and basically, all this is familiar, isn't it? All this is how the devil operates, causing you to first doubt and then to sin as quickly as possible. That's right. So when you always sin follows doubt. Okay, remember that. And uh, uh, Canada has been subdued by all this marketing as well. European countries have also fallen for it. Uh, so America is a work in progress, um, but the damage is already being done. Um, so we live not in an age of truth. People aren't seekers of the truth. They're not lovers of the truth. There's very few that are. And we live in an age where truth is manipulated and deception is idolized and um, worshipped, basically. So the result is people will believe a lie, and wrong is right, and right is wrong. So don't allow yourself to be desensitized like this and get to give up your moral, what you know is right and wrong. That's a compass, and you need to hold on to that. So this is indeed a brutal marketing campaign, but God our Father says we have to fight against this. And, you know, we're supposed to run to the battle. And uh, that's right, because right is the only thing that holds back the wrong, right? Because darkness and light can't coexist, remember? So like-minded people, bring the morality, you know, common sense. Bring the freedom back, you know, to America. Let's, let's all get on the same sheet of music with that. And not to be desensitized, not to be brainwashed, not to be hoodwinked by marketing. Because that's what it is. All right, my soapbox for what it's worth. All right, we we got a few minutes. Let's talk about uh, varicose veins. 
uh, leg veins. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you see the ads for all these uh, products. You see, um, you know, dermatologists advertising in your local papers about, you know, coming in, uh, a vein specialist, um, you know, uh, uh, varicose veins affects, 20% of men and about 33% of women. And according to National Institutes of Health, 25 million Americans have varicose veins. That's one in 40 uh, have this. So uh, according to medical, the medical establishment, they estimate 41% of American women are going to have varicose veins by their 50th birthday. And uh, if we ha- add men to that category, that jumps to 60%. Uh, people over the age of 50 with um, varicose veins. So these are just statistics, but I don't like them. You know, um, people between the ages of 30 to 70 actually can have varicose veins. Um, Globally, 25% of the Western countries have uh, people suffering from this condition. So granted, normal, abnormal veins are not life-threatening, you know, like heart attacks or cancer, but they do have a negative impact. Varicose veins can be unsightly. They can affect your mental health. Varicose veins, um, especially the lower extremities, um, they do have somewhat of a mortality rate. If you look at the top three countries, we see that annual mortality rate uh, for varicose veins in America is 177, uh, 152 in Germany, 148 in Brazil. So these countries with very low mortality rates, um, like one annually would be New Zealand, Luxembourg, and Norway. And that's because, you know, they eat different and they exercise. They walk a lot. That has a lot to do with it. So I know I'm running out of time. I just need more time. But definitely you want to shore up the veins. Just I'll get to more information on this in another show. But you want to shore up the, 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 the veins and the cell integrity so they don't collapse and bleed, and uh, so that the valves in the veins can pump blood up and down like it should. So you want to make sure you're getting some organic vitamin C, some real plant calcium, and um, also use your organic Celtic sea salt. That will make sure the cell walls stay nice and strong. That's sun-dried salt, by the way. That's not processed salt. So if you're looking for that, it's on the PowerHerbs.com website, along with your calcium formula. And uh, definitely, definitely, if you need some heart health, we do have a cardiovascular section you'll want to check out because a lot of times uh, cardiovascular issues and varicose veins go hand in hand. So uh, check that out, thepowerherbs.com. Call for a free product catalog, 866-229-3663, the powerherbs.com. It's where your healthcare options just became endless. Okay, don't forget, coming up, Next time, we're going to talk with Scott from Out of the, Pot, Heart, Out of the Park Hot Sauce, and uh, he'll be amazing. We're going to be chatting it up with him, and I hope you can join us for that. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease, so seek medical advice, if you dare, from a licensed medical physician before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well.
countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
friends, good evening and welcome to the Covenanters Call. We appreciate you tuning in to the broadcast this evening. We are a Bible call-in question and answer program. If you've got a question or comment concerning the information we're dealing with or whatever's on your mind, then you give us a call here at 1-800-932-1980. That's 1-800-932-1980. And we would welcome your call this evening. If you have opportunity, come into the chat room. There's about eight of us in there so far, and already stimulating conversation is taking place. I have friends in there and, and even some relatives, and I would encourage you to come in. Come here to American Voice Radio and simply click on chat. Give yourself a secret agent code name and come on in. We would love to have you there during this broadcast. Appreciate the faithful listeners out there. Special hello to Deborah down there in uh, the North Carolina area. And we haven't forgotten about you down there, sister. Hello to the folk out in Washington State and northern New Mexico and other places across the country that faithfully listen. We appreciate it so much, and it's always glad to, we're always glad to have you here. Let me remind you of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, on the 22nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th of September, that's a week after next, we're going to be going over to family camp at Faith Baptist Church there in Etterville, uh, Missouri, with uh, Pastor Shea Carpenter. We try to go over there every year. We'll probably have 40 or 50 folk from our church over there those four days. And we're looking forward to a great time in the Lord, lots of good preaching, lots of great fellowship. If you are in the Jeff City and West area of southern Missouri, then we would encourage you to come and be and meet us there, be there with us. Uh, they'll be preaching every day, every night. There'll be great food, as I said a moment ago, and lots of great fellowship for the family. We would encourage you to come for the opportunity to meet you there. And then remember, our annual uh, Ecclesiastical Law Center Conference uh, will have uh, Pastor Ben Townsend, Pastor Keith Hoover, uh, Lord willing, we're going to try to get uh, Brother Jason Burton down there, some other preachers from across the country. And that will take place in December of this year, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. That is a Sunday through a Wednesday night, and we're looking forward to some good time in the Lord, and we would encourage you to come and be a part of that as well. And uh, we are always encouraged to know that there are folk out there that are listening. And boy, howdy, isn't there something uh, interesting going on in the news every day? That's what we've been talking about over the last several broadcasts here about the Genuine Church. I want to I conclude as quickly as I can in the first half of the broadcast this evening some things that I was saying on last Tuesday night. We've been talking about the Genuine Church. A lot of people out there call themselves the church. A lot of them say they're a Christian. But uh, we were winding down, and I asked you several questions, and I'd like to continue on with that thought this evening. And I'm going to ask you one more time, American Christian. What will you and your church do during the time Paul described as perilous? During those last days, uh, during these days, if you please, which surely are the beginning of the judgment of God upon America. What are you going to do? Now, you're going to falter, the average individual that's out there, and I'm not your judge, I'm simply sharing Scripture and looking what the Bible describes as a true believer and a true church and one that simply claims to be. Now, how do I know that you're going to falter? How do I know that you'll fail and faint in the day of adversity? Well, friend, first of all, because Jesus said you would. Second, because that's exactly what the people of Israel did when they were about to be invaded by Nebuchadnezzar. Read the book of Jeremiah. He told the Jews, because God told him, that they should stay in the land and God would protect them. But they were fearful. They obeyed and followed their hireling preachers rather than the man of God. They would flee to Egypt for what they thought was safety. 
God told them that if they fled and did not stay as he required, the sword would follow them to Egypt, where it would devour them and those whom they begged for protection. And, of course, friends, that's exactly what happened. It will happen in America to the untrue and faithless American Christians as well. The few genuine churches left in America during the last days are mostly untrue churches. They're not just a little untrue. They become grossly untrue. They're led by hireling pastors who will scatter God's flock, over the which they've been given the oversight, just as the false pastors scattered the flock in the book of Jeremiah. Indeed, Jesus Christ will find little faith on the earth when he returns. The major blame will rest with the failing, impotent, ignorant, weak-willed, cowardly pastors. God calls them dumb dogs that cannot bark in the book of Isaiah. When the times begin to become perilous indeed, the pastors of the few remaining genuine churches will lead their people into compromise, into acquiescence, before the wicked, God-hating government, which is the arm of destruction working for Satan. Thousands of pastors all over America are currently involved in the process of government-sponsored training to betray God and their churches at the devil's appointed time. Let's investigate that wild claim, shall we? Am I just blowing smoke? Am I insulting your pastor, whom you know to be a man of character, brave and true and fearless? Just what does God expect of his pastors anyway? He expects them to be the under-shepherds. He's called them to be. He expects them to lead their flocks into ways of righteousness. He expects them to stand in the gap and to make up the hedge. He expects them to cry aloud and spare not, showing God's people their sin. He expects them to be in the forefront of exposing and then resisting evil, wickedness, and tyranny in the land. Let me ask you a question tonight, friend. Where are they? What are they doing? They're certainly not fulfilling God's will for them. They're hiding. They're cowering down within the four walls of their 501c3 government-licensed church buildings. They're urging their people to go along to get along. It was not always that way in America. During the few decades before the War for American Independence, and then during that war, the pastors in the land were the firebrands of freedom. Thousands of them did indeed stand in the gap, make up the hedge, cry aloud, and lead the people into freedom from the tyranny of Great Britain, by the way, the first worldwide modern-day imperialistic government. In fact, so great was the influence of the pastors of the revolutionary era upon the patriotism of the people that the British referred to them as the Black Brigade or the Black Regiment the color of their robes of office. It, be, it, was, it was them that gave strength to those that followed the truth. It was a military term because they were indeed militant in leading their people, their flocks, their churches against evil and wickedness and tyranny in the land. But where are they today? Where are they today? What are they doing for the cause of Christ today? Oh, there have been a few down through the last 15 or 20 years that supposedly have taken a stand against something. And yet the federal government apparently finds it's easy 
to recruit over 75,000 pastors and religious leaders to be part of its clergy response team, by the way, in support of evil and wickedness and tyranny in the land. No wonder, friends, we're in for God's judgment. How ready are pastors to speak forth what they believe? How willing are they to honor the God whom they claim to serve by telling forth the gospel of Jesus Christ when given the opportunity to do so? How bold, how brave are they to step forward in even non-threatening environments and deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ as they understand it? Well, folks, they aren't willing. Even when given the opportunity to do so with no fear of reprisal, are they willing to step outside the four walls of their whited sepulchers, their church buildings, and say, this is what I believe and this is why? Hmm. A few years ago, a simple 10-question survey was sent to 20 pastors in a local area in southern Missouri. They're in rural southern Missouri in the Bible Belt, in the supposed stronghold of what remains of biblical Christianity in America. These pastors were asked very easy-to-understand questions of several different denominations. Questions like this. According to what your church teaches, how does a person get to heaven? Questions like, does water baptism have a part to play in salvation? Friends, these were easy questions. A halfway intelligent man could have answered all of them in a few minutes. Some were even sent along a self-addressed stamped envelope for them to use in response. You know, you'd think that a pastor would welcome the opportunity to put forth what he believed, to speak the truth, to speak forth what he believed the Bible teaches, to influence another person with what he assumedly preaches from his pulpit. One would think so. Was it too much to expect? Well, friends, it was. Less than half responded at all. Of those who responded, one sent back a blank, unanswered questionnaire. He sent along a little note declining the answer because he suspected I was trying to trick him and trap him with his own words. Several who responded only answering a few of the simple questions left many of them unanswered. Why? Well, friends, maybe they don't have answers. Another one who responded informed that it was none of our business what he believed about the questions that were asked. These pastors were not the ones we might find in the big eastern cities like New York. They were not the liberal New Agers you might expect to find behind the pulpit in St. John the Divine Cathedral. They were not the liberal, godless reprobates you might expect to find at Saddleback Church or the Crystal Cathedral. No, friend. These pastors were middle America. They were, are, the pastors of the folks we might think of as conservative, hardworking, blue-collar, sensible, farmland Americans. So what are we to believe when we see the so-called pastors of America responding or not responding as, the, as these, quote, brave, end of quote, men did? Are we to believe that when things get really bad and that when true Christians are required to stand for what they claim to believe, to live in their faith and not just mouth it, that these men like these wimps will actually lead them? God help us, friends. I want to make a statement now that I do not make from a heart of criticism nor judgment, 
but observation. Our pastors today are frauds. Let me say it again. Our pastors today are frauds. Jesus calls them hirelings, and hirelings they are. As he tells us, they will flee at the sound of the first shot, at the first clanking of the chains, at the first wail of the siren. They'll be gone, vanished, invisible. Or what's worse, they'll be there with the enemy, with Satan's minions, providing them lists of names and where the owners of the names can be found. Now, friend, does this mean that every genuine church will turn its back on Jesus Christ, its Savior, and bow the knee before Baal in the last days? No, friends, not all will cave in. Some few, some very few, will stand against the evil that's arrayed against them, evil which will be supported by the hireling pastors and the untrue churches. These few will be among the first to be attacked, imprisoned, tortured, and martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. It's possible that this killing frenzy will begin in America before the rapture takes place. It will mature and come to full fruition after the churches are taken away during the time of the tribulation. But it will begin, as Peter said, at the house of God, which remains on the earth before the rapture. Untrue, cowardly Christians will stand idly by and watch as their true brethren are ravaged and savaged by the government which they, the untrue, refuse to disobey. It's happened before in the history of the church. It's happened often before. It occurred in a thousand different places to millions of true believers during the dark ravages of the Roman Catholic cult upon all of Europe. It happened in early America, when the state-sponsored harlot daughters of the Roman cult tried to impose their false religion upon the true believers. It happened in Germany, overrun, uh, when Germany overran Europe during World War II. It'll happen in the devil's America in the last days. The untrue churches will stand by, as did Lot in Sodom, and vex their souls daily, doing nothing, quailing in the corners, resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit against their cowardly rejection of the truth nightly as they lie quaking in their beds. But their failure and abject refusal to stand for righteousness will not preclude their own suffering. In the end, before Christ comes for them, they too will experience their own suffering at the hands of the evil one and his wicked minions. The untrue churches will feel the judging hand of God upon their iniquity. For indeed, in judgment, friend, shall begin at the house of God. Now for those of you listening tonight who aren't born again, even you faithfully, you who faithfully attend pseudo-churches, you're going to miss the rapture. Unless you're saved by repeating, or excuse me, I'm repeating, repenting, of your rejection of Jesus Christ and believing on him before he returns for his bride, you're going to see full force the intense evil which Satan will unleash upon the entire world during the time of the tribulation. The wickedness and the evil the Christians will see before the rapture, bad as it may be, will be nothing compared to what you lost ones will see and experience during the tribulation time. 
Maybe your greatest disappointment will be realizing that you missed the rapture because of your unbelief or because of your false belief. Both, by the way, will lead you to hell. You still may be saved, however, even if you miss the rapture. God will still be merciful upon you. He will send 144,000 of his chosen Hebrew witnesses to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the earth during the time of the tribulation. But by that time, friends, more than likely you'll have believed the lie. Oh yes, those Hebrew evangelists will preach, and there will be those who will trust in Christ during that time. But you see, you've already had your chance if you've even listened to this broadcast. The genuine churches shall prevail over evil and the devil, even though they may die for it. They will be few. They will be small. But God has never been impressed with numbers, friend. In fact, it seems he'd rather deal with and use the remnant than he would the crowd. Those few genuine churches will remain true during the perilous last times, and they may be the spark that ignites the flame of the candle standing high upon the hill in the darkest of the night, awaiting the glorious catching away of all those who belong to Jesus. It will be the shining light of that candle which will catch the eye of Christ in the clouds as the last trump sounds and we're caught away. A light shining in a dark place is the most powerful of lights. For it dispels the darkness with swift and utter triumph. It will be that light, the few, the last remaining genuine true churches, who will hear these words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Let me ask you a question tonight, friend. Are you real? Is that church you go to real? You're going to find out you'll have the opportunity to prove your reality. And it might not be too far in the future, friend. You see, we struggle with different groups of people that we've known for years. People that we give a name to. Supposing that name to mean something, and many times it does not. I'd like to finish the broadcast today beginning a couple of a broadcast message dealing with another group of people. Those that listen to broadcasting networks such as this. Those that find themselves up in arms when court clerks are put in jail by sodomite-loving judges down in Kentucky. When other things take place. I want to talk to you tonight, friend. Let me ask a question as I begin. We're going to go to break here in about five or six minutes, but let's begin. Who is a patriot? Who is a patriot? There are many that will respond quickly, almost without thinking, as the question seems entirely elementary. One person might say, a patriot is a person who loves his country. Well, indeed, friends, that exact answer, or one very similar, might escape our own lips. The man credited with writing the first American Dictionary, Noah Webster in 1828 defined a patriot in this way. Patriot, a person who loves his country and zealously supports and defends it and its interests. 
We're going to take some time over the next several weeks and speak about the patriot. But we're also going to speak about a principle. A principle is a fundamental or rudimentary or foundational truth upon which other truths may be based. So then the patriot principle must be a fundamental truth regarding the patriot or who he is, upon which other truths about him are based or arise or rest. That's our idea as we deal with this. The ideas expressed will be mine, but they're not mine alone. They don't originate in my own mind. They are ideas regarding the patriot principle far above and beyond the mere frail human capabilities and capacities of you or I. The ideas expressed regarding the patriot principle are from the author of truth found in his holy book, the record of his testimony to mankind, the King James Bible. We begin with the subject of truth since a principle is a fundamental truth upon which other truths are built. Once we establish the author and the origin of truth, then we'll proceed to discuss the patriot principle in some detail. You see, friend, contrary to the cynical question that was asked of Jesus Christ by Pontius Pilate in 33 AD, what is truth? By the way, that's found in John 18, verse 38. We understand that truth is easily transmitted to mankind. It's clear. It's absolutely dependable. Never changing and universal in its application. For that, we praise the Lord. So let's begin on this broadcast this evening our quest regarding the patriot principle by discovering the truth. In his so-called high priestly prayer to God, the Father in the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ acknowledged that truth is God's word. He said as he prayed there in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus declared that God's word is truth. If we desire to know truth, we turn to God's word. Consider this regarding God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 1. The inspired, inerrant, preserved, and true words of God in this Bible passage capitalize the word, Word. It appears three times in John 1, 1. Now why is that? It's because when John writes Word in that verse, he's referring to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the very living Word of God. More than that, Jesus Christ is very God, the Word, who is at the beginning, the living Word. Jesus Christ is truth because God's Word is truth. You see, the two are one and the same. Webster defines truth as, and I quote, exact accordance with that which is or has been, or shall be. This definition is an apt description of God himself. God, the word, truth, is all that is, or has been, or shall be. 
all and everything pertaining to the universe, in order to be truth, must be in accord with God and his word, which is truth. That which is, has been, and which shall be. It may be difficult for we mere humans to understand this synthesis, if you please. But nevertheless, we may be able to get our minds around the absolute and unchangeable fact that truth is at the foundation of reality. You see, friends, without truth, reality is a message. It's, it's vanity. And if we expect to understand the realities associated with the patriot principle, then we must understand the truth which supports those realities. Now, friends, we're about to go to break here, but I want you to stay tuned for the second half of the Covenanters' call, because we're speaking in particular to you patriots. I've not said there's anything wrong with being one, but let's talk about the principle and see what the Bible says about it. You stay tuned for the Covenanters' call. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three wsthepowerherbscom Study 
studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Welcome back to the Covenanters Call. Once again, this is Pastor Mike Hoover. We are broadcasting live from hot and muggy southern Indiana, and we appreciate you tuning in to the broadcast this evening. Our call-in number, 1-800-932-1980. One more time. That's 1-800-932-1980. Of course, that's a toll-free call. You can call into the American Voice Radio Broadcasting Network, and uh, we will screen you. Uh, we have a screener that uh, is just uh, the best there is, and uh, if he deems that you uh, are fit for this broadcast, <laughs> that's the only way I can say it, then uh, he will certainly let you through, but uh, we would welcome your call. Let me remind you of a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, be a supporter of American Voice Radio, and uh, I know that uh, that's something that uh, is near to my heart as well as the folks that are listening, and uh, I encourage you to be a, a, a help. There's a lot of cost involved in a broadcasting network, especially one such as this. And, and uh, you know, there are lots of things that you probably fail to even realize about what uh, Frank has to deal with at AVR, uh, not just uh, the, the great expense that's involved, uh, but also, you know, the, the attacks, the Internet attacks and the different things that takes play, take place there. Believe it or not, there are, there are probably, and this is a guess, no one's told me this, but there are probably other supposed patriot, and that's who we're talking to right now, supposed patriot broadcasting networks that will do their best to undermine and undercut American Voice Radio and others in order to pick up their listeners and uh, to make themselves look better. Um, and that, that's just something you need to be aware of. So be a supporter. And uh, we'd love to hear from you this week. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337 in Orleans, Indiana, 47452. Uh, you can uh, drop me an email, Pastor Mike at historicbaptists.net, or you can give us a phone call. The number is 812-653-5578, and we would uh, certainly love to hear from you. Appreciate it any time we have the opportunity to hear from uh, any of our listeners. And every once in a while, we hear from them in the mail. And by, by the way, folks, we're not asking for money. Uh, God provides the means whereby we can be on this network, and we thank the Lord for that. And uh, we're not asking for money. We just love to hear from you. 
But uh, we encourage you to let us know that you're out there. As I said, a special hello uh, to all of our uh, faithful listeners. And we appreciate you. Don't forget the meetings coming up, family camp in southern Missouri, week after next. Our ELC meeting, uh, the first full week of December of this year, and we'll mention that uh, later on down the road as we do other broadcasts. But uh, we'd love to have you come. Friends, truth is all and only God's Word. Now, it's been transmitted to mankind. It's clear. It's absolutely dependable. It never changes. It is entirely preserved. It's universal in its application. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather believe, acknowledge, accept, and do truth? Or would you rather believe and follow after non-truth? Lies and falsehoods and deceit and unreality. Friends, non-truth doesn't preserve. Non-truth destroys. It leads to condemnation and death. As Jesus Christ, God is the source of truth. The Bible declares that Lucifer, Satan, the devil, is the source of lies. Jesus said there in John chapter 8, verse 44, He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In the universe, there is truth and there is lie, which is untruth. God's word is truth. Satan's word is lie. By the way, there is no in-between. There's either truth or lie. Jesus said that when Satan speaks, he speaks lies. In fact, he's the father of lies. He's the father of untruth. So since we know that non-truth does not preserve, then we know that the things which Satan speaks, lies, have no power to preserve. That is, to give or to sustain the energy of life or being. Only God's Word has that power. To review a simple and easily understood example of truth, read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, friends. Satan wishes to deceive men into believing that if they seek after, accept, and acknowledge, and follow his words, by the way, which are lies, then they'll be following the truth. Now, why does Satan do that? Jesus says that Satan, from the beginning, has been a murderer. Satan deceives men into believing his words are truth because he wishes to murder them. His great desire, aside from wishing to exalt himself as God, is to see the utter, total, and complete destruction of mankind from the face of the earth. To murder mankind is his goal. Now, how does he plan to do it? He'll do it, he'll bring it to pass, by telling men lies posing as the truth. Men will accept the lies of Satan, thinking them to be the truth. Because they believe Satan's lies, they'll be condemned at the time when God's judge, judgment comes on all the earth in righteousness, because they depended on the lies of Satan to preserve them. Instead of depending upon the truth of God to preserve them, Men in the billions accept the lies of the devil. 
The only and inevitable result of believing the lies of Satan is death. If he has a will for mankind, that's it. He wants mankind to die. You see, friends, Satan is the arch-murderer. The lies of Lucifer, the devil, are myriad. They're innumerable. And they're to be found in every place where the human mind dwells and probes and imagines. Now, without listing all the devil's lies, we can lump them all together in one verse from the Bible. The Bible tells us in Colossians 2 and verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You see, Satan's goal is the utter destruction of mankind. But God also has a will for men. It's found in his word, in his truth. God's will for mankind is truth. It's trustworthy, never changing, and universal in its application. His will for mankind is that none will die without Jesus Christ and go to hell. You can read about it in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The truth of God upon which this salvation for mankind rests is righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, manifested through his finished work on the cross, it's possible for all mankind, for any man, to be saved from hell. It's possible for any man to escape his murder at the hands of Satan's lies by believing and accepting the truth of God through Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, as you know, or most of you should know, because of Adam's sin, that was believing and acting upon the very first lie of Satan, God placed a curse upon all creation. This curse lasts in time from Genesis chapter 3 until the advent of the new heaven and new earth that's described for us at the end of the book of Revelation. Now, friends, that's a long time. In essence, it's equal to the time that mankind is upon this earth from the Garden of Eden to the New Earth. Men refer to this time period, this parenthesis in God's existence, as history. You see, friends, with God there is no history. He's always been and always will be. He's eternal. So he does not reckon history as it pertains to time regarding himself. But men do reckon with history. We count time. We take accounting of time. Our time on the earth and call it history. And even though the time from Eden to the new earth is merely a parenthesis in God's eternal plan for mankind, he still operates with the same plan for man. He desires that men be with him forever. Because of sin, however and the resulting curse upon all creation, God's will for men to live with him forever required the righteousness of Jesus Christ as the means for men to spend eternity with God. Righteousness is a requirement from God toward men to establish and maintain and ultimately complete his everlasting relationship with man. Now, this righteousness required by God goes on 
It continues even in the face and the time of the curse. For while men live on the earth during this time of the curse, during this parenthesis, if you please, from Eden to the new earth, God requires the fact and presence of righteousness among men. Of course, no man is righteous before God without the blood of Christ to cover him. But after a man, any man, accepts the blood of Christ for his righteousness before God, he's commanded by God to do righteousness while he lives on the earth. This righteousness, which a man is required to perform, has nothing to do with maintenance of salvation, but with showing or revealing that salvation has taken place. Paul the Apostle puts it this way in Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, friends, working out our own salvation is to be showing forth in righteous works what's already occurred as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul expresses the same thought. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. You see, friends, to lay hold on eternal life is to demonstrate one's faith and the salvation which arises from that faith by fighting the good fight of faith in doing righteousness. Now, we're exhorted to do righteousness before God as and while we live on the earth after having been saved and made righteous before God through the blood of Christ. In fact, this business of doing righteousness before God is a requirement he places on all men. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 12 and 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every good work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good, or whether it be evil. You see, friend, all men are required by God to fear him and to keep his commandments. In other words, to do righteousness. And he tells men that those things they do, whether righteous or whether unrighteous, will be judged by him in righteousness. Man cannot escape the requirement from God to do righteousness. The righteousness that God requires from all men is that they first fear him. You see, friend, to fear God is to know him, to love him, to worship him, to yield to his sovereignty, and be desirous to obey him. In other words, no man may fear God unless he knows God as his Savior. Jesus declared it to be so in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, this is the first and great commandment. Secondly, God commands all men to keep his commandments. Now, we know that no man, even a saved man, may keep all of God's commandments perfectly because of the presence of sin. Sin will dwell among men until it's taken away at the time of the appearing of the new earth. But God's requirement for righteousness among men still stands to the best of our ability to obey him and our soul, which is being sanctified, we are to do righteousness before God. 
That is God's will for men on the earth. God understands that no man may be perfectly sinless on the earth, so he provides the continual cleansing blood of Christ to cover sins committed after salvation. 1 John chapter 1. You recall what Jesus said is the second great commandment there in Matthew chapter 22. He said, in, he said this, excuse me, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, verses 39 and 40. Now, tuck that second commandment away in your memory bank for a while, because we're going to return to it later on. We've got to take a moment here, though, to treat another issue at this point. And that issue is this. Reality. The question is, what is reality? Or what is real? Having determined that all truth originates with God and that God himself is very truth, then the question regarding what is real is resolved for us. Reality, or what's real, is determined by God and by him alone, as he is the source of all truth. In its profound and simple way, the Bible settles the question of reality in the first four words that are found in it. In the beginning, God. That's Genesis 1.1. Yes, in the beginning, God. God is reality. God determines what's real. As far as men are concerned, relating to physical things, the universe, that is all creation, made by God through his spoken word, is reality. The universe, or creation, did not make itself. No, friend, God made it. But the liar, Satan, would have men to believe one of his lies regarding the reality of the universe. He tells men that the universe created itself. And by extrapolation, that life also created itself. That's astounding, isn't it? God created man. That is reality. And since God is the creator of man, that man, all men, are accountable to God, their creator. Again, Satan comes along and declares through a lie that man is merely a result of life creating itself. In fact, he lies to men saying that they are the epitome of life. There is none higher. He tells men that by some random chance, the mysterious force which created life also evolved mankind into the epitome of all life. He lies to men once again saying that since they have evolved into the epitome of life, that they have the right to rule the earth, to make it subject to their will. And therefore, by extrapolation, Satan tells men that the entire universe is open to their interpretation, to their exploration, to their manipulation, and even their domination. He deceives men into exalting themselves as gods. That's with a little g, by the way just as Satan would exalt himself to be as God, the actual God. Men, he lies, are accountable only to themselves. All this unreality in the face of God's commandment to men that they have no other God before him. That's found in Exodus chapter 20. If men accept the truth that God is the creator of reality then they find it logical and reasonable and compelling to follow after and seek righteousness. 
If men accept the lie that reality is merely a result of random chance, of evolution, of even their own fallible minds, then men find it compelling to follow after and seek the leading of their own wicked imaginations. Oh, you can read about that in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. You may ask, what has all this to do with the thing called the patriot principle? Patriotism and the principle which undergirds it are subordinate to truth and reality. The patriot principle is a function of truth and reality. If it were not, then it would be a lie. It would be untruth and unreal. It would be mere foolishness subject to the ever-changing whims and fancies and pragmatic turns of the human imagination. We make the point that the author of truth and reality has a claim upon patriotism. Its existence, its definition, its use, and its purpose. And we'll prove this claim according to the truth of God's Word. This proof will stand in contradiction to the commonly accepted practiced ideas that men hold regarding patriotism. So what in the world does that mean, preacher? That means that there is a right and a wrong regarding patriotism. Yes, even that patriotism is a moral concept. Therefore, we must begin with a small journey into the realm of righteousness. What is righteousness? If we're going to find out about patriotism, how does our journey lead into that particular theme? Well, Lord willing, we're going to talk about that beginning next Tuesday evening here on the Covenanters' Call. But I want you to be thinking during that time. Think about being a patriot, what that means. Think about what true patriotism is. And then as we step by step, line upon line, precept upon precept, build this truth based from God's Word, it may give you a different perspective as to what you're seeing around you today. This never ceased to amaze me as a pastor at the number of people that call themselves patriots that have no problem supporting the One World Church. They have no problem supporting the 501c3. I mean, you know, if they go, of course, they, they look around and try their best to find something wrong with the local assembly in order not to go. And by the way, that's not hard to do. All you have to do is look inwardly because no church is perfect. And if you think you found the perfect church, you don't want to go there because you'll mess it up. But it never ceases to amaze me, as I was saying, the number of people that believe they're patriots, call themselves patriots of this country, that do not realize that it has become a religion in their lives, and it has taken the place of the things of God, and that the, they will overlook and, and forget about their own inconsistencies in order to stand and be seen and be heard. I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to fill in on a radio broadcast, the local station out in the... Colorado, state of Colorado, in the Denver area. Another pastor and I were on there for two hours filling in for a friend, and we were talking about the 
current situations with the 501c3 and the church and what's the true church and what is not the true church. And I got a phone call. We got a phone call. It's a call-in broadcast there. And the man began by asking a question. I could tell that he was very critical in his assessment of what we were having to say. But the real reason he called was to proclaim all that he had done to stand in the fight against abortion. I'm against abortion. I believe it's infanticide. It violates the word of God, and we have the blood of those innocent children on our hands in this country. And people don't like to hear it, but every dime they pay in their income tax is a benefit, whether directly or indirectly, toward the destruction of those children. Oh, now, the room gets quiet when you mention those things. But he began to vent himself on this broadcast and tell us all that he had done and how he had lost everything and done this and done that, but he didn't go to church. You see, folks, when we begin to look at our priorities, we begin to realize how mixed up we really can be. Because ultimately, as we've already said on this broadcast, the true reality is the reality that's found in God and his word. Everything that you see around you, friend, look around the room where you're sitting. Everything you see, everything, even the body in which you dwell, is a dream. It'll be gone one day. It'll all be gone. And you'll step into that spiritual realm that is the true one. This is a Covenanter's Call. I'd certainly love to hear from you this week, friends. You could call me. Pastor Mike Hoover at 812-653-5578. You can drop me an email, Pastor Mike at historicbaptists.net. Let me give that to you again. Historicbaptists.net. Or you can drop something in the mail. I'd love to have a letter from you. Write to me here, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337. Orleans, Indiana, 47452. Lots more great programming coming up this evening on American Voice Radio. I encourage you to stay tuned and stay listening. I appreciate your prayers this coming Monday for my wife and two grandsons that will be flying out to Arizona. Pray God's mercy be upon them. Hear the music. My time's up. Until we meet you again on the airwaves, may God bless you is our prayer. Have a great evening.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
gentlemen, I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is the American Independence Hour for Tuesday, 8th day of September, year of our Lord, 2015. I am a man made in God's image, given dominion over the animals, as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights, as per the Declaration of Independence, and I am broadcasting from within the borders of a state of the Union, that state being the state of Texas. Co-host is Frank Steffen. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Oh, you say that, but I don't, you don't sound all that sincere. No, I am. I'm really sincere. Real mm-hmm. sincere. Okay. Well, not, okay. Sincere, but not enthusiastic. Oh, is sincere and enthusiastic. All right, all right. Um, we had a video that we we're going to try to get to last week, and we didn't. Uh, it was Louis Farrakhan, who is the leader of the Nation of Islam, speaking to members of his mosque uh, on the law of retaliation and declaring that he wanted another million-man march and out of that million men, he wanted 10,000 men to show up with rifles who were prepared to die for their uh, for their freedom. And we were going to run the soundtrack of that video today. Um, but as it turns out, they have deleted the video. It's been removed by request of the, the uh, user, whoever and that would be presumably fair can or someone working for them. But it's been removed from the Internet where we don't have access to it today. But what I wanted to do with that, part of, of course, you wouldn't be able to see the video, but you could hear the text of it. And the text is essentially this. Louis Farrakhan is arguing that blacks have been so oppressed by whites they are entitled by the law of retaliation, which he apparently finds in the Muslim faith. They're entitled to start shooting whites. That's the implication of what he had to say in the video. And I, we, it would have been a two-minute and 40-second video. We would have run it and commented on it as we went through there. I don't know if you had a chance to see the video, Frank. I know you... You downloaded the link for it uh, last week, but I don't know if you actually had a chance to see the video. Did you see no, it? No, I didn't, actually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I didn't. I had well, it saved right there, and when you said that, I went to click on it, and it started to play, and then it stopped, and it came up and said, this has been removed. Yeah. That's, well, surprise, surprise. We've seen a bunch of this lately. But I, I mean, have seen I have seen other Farrakhan speeches, so you know it, I'm not shocked that he would say, "Start shooting whites." You know, this is what we want to do because this is, this is what he this is what he does. Well, I don't pay attention to him. Tell you the truth, and uh, I haven't seen it in the past, and it just struck me as remarkable that he's dumb enough to say this. You know how many jobs he's probably cost African-Americans with that stupid video? I mean, if you need to hire somebody to work at your radio station, Frank, 
Is Black going to be your first choice? Uh, yeah, right behind Mexican. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and only because the Mexicans will work cheaper. Yeah, high and will, of course. <laughs> and they will, but they will work. Blacks, on the other hand, what what aggravated me, what annoyed me, was Louis Farrakhan talking about this law of retaliation, because it's based on the idea that the poor, suffering blacks are constantly oppressed by the evil whites. You know, I've argued on this in the past. I've questioned how long shall the people who've never had slaves, and that would be the current American white people, be held accountable to the people who've never been slaves, and that's the current black people, for the crime of slavery, which ended something like 140 years ago. I mean, when do the blacks finally just get up and say, okay, we can take care of ourselves? Instead of playing the race card, playing the race card, playing the race card, and trying to get over with it. And that's all it is. There is no reason why any living white should be held accountable to blacks for the crime of slavery. Right? We haven't had any slaves. There haven't been any slaves. There, there was the end. Slavery ended before any of us were born. Well, I, know I know that there's been residual discrimination and the rest but I also understand there's been current discrimination against whites in form of affirmative action. Well, I think some How of the are Chinese we... would argue that some of these U.S. corporations uh, maybe are responsible for some slavery. Well, I agree with that, but <laughs> the current slaves aren't complaining. Right, right. Um, well, no, they're jumping off roofs at lunch, but, you know, other than that... They're not complaining. No. They're not complaining. It may be that they're just so... Well, I'm not even going to make a joke out of that. I, uh, there's no doubt that there are problems in this world, but what that isn't one of bothered them, yeah. me, Farrakhan is playing on this sense of entitlement that seems to permeate the African-American community. They're entitled to welfare. They're entitled to subsidies. They're entitled to support. They're entitled, and the basis of the entitlement is that they've been treated unfairly, and what I'm saying is I don't think they have, at least not in the last 20 to 40 years. Well, this is, I always group Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, and the lunatic, Louis Farrakhan, and that's how I always say it, because all three of them are exactly the same They've got different rhetoric, but it's the same story, just exactly what you said. We're oppressed. We deserve something we didn't work for. Uh, things aren't right, and it's your fault. Yep. You know, And that's it. They say it different ways, and they have different solutions. Well, actually, they don't have different solutions. Uh, Farrakhan is, like I said, I've seen his speeches before, and he's more radical than, say, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. They're kind of whiners, and they just go on and... You well, they're more interested you. in extortion anyway than, than right. Farrakhan. <laughs> yeah, they Farrakhan's really are. interested in shooting, apparently, if I can judge from the one email, email or the one video that I can no longer see. He's interested in shooting, but there have been more than a few rumors, stories, suspicions that Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton are both willing to work the uh, uh, businesses of the corporations in this country 
They'll say, look, if you don't come across with some money for us, for our organization, we're going to invite uh, black folk to picket your businesses. Picket, boycott, make a big stink, and we'll take Mm -hmm. the money, and that won't happen. And, yeah, yeah, they do. And Farrakhan, uh, Farrakhan, the difference is, you know, he is a Muslim, and he... Sadly to say, I think he may be more sincere than both Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton in whatever he believes, which is is, is almost hard to, you know, like you say, you know, 150 years this has been over. I mean, you know, nobody is alive who was a slave. Nobody's alive who owned a slave. It's like, come on, you know. And most of us were, and most white people in this country were not even derived from people. I don't have any ancestors that kept slaves. No, I I personally don't. Yeah. I'm a relatively recent immigrant to this country. I'm second-generation American. My grandparents didn't come here until well after the Civil War was over. Sure, but... They never had slaves. You know, even even if our parents owned slaves or our grandparents owned slaves, it was, you know, that was still a long time ago, and it has nothing to do with me. I agree. You know... And how do you end racism by saying people are guilty because of the color of their skin? Well, it's the Meaning same. white people are guilty. Well, We're going to end racism by making, instead of holding black people uh, as, as slaves, we're going to make white people be slaves. And that's how we're going to end racism. It's no, the, we're not. It's the same we're way going we're, to amplify it. It's the same way we deal with crime. You know, we let a felon out of prison, but then say, well, you can't vote, you can't have guns, you can't get a job, you can't do any of these things, we've taken away half your rights, but hey, you're free. Thanks for paying your debt to society. Mm-hmm. You know, how do they get integrated back into society? And then we wonder why we have a recidivism rate, and, and it's the same with the black community. You know, it's like, well, okay, fine, you know, uh, you're not slaves anymore, but then we're going to have welfare, we're going to have food stamps, we're going to have all these programs, we're going to have affirmative action, we're going to do all this, and we're never going to end it. How are those people ever supposed to actually get into a productive society? That's not yeah. productive. That's, you know, and I get it, a hand up. Okay, sometimes people need some help. I have nothing against that, but there has to come a time when you go, okay, now, look, the training wheel's got to come off. And if you crash and fall, well, then you just do. But, you know, there has to come a time when they come off, and it's never come off for this whole I think, thing. I think uh, Barack Obama was a big blow to people who wanted to play the race card because pretty hard to argue that there's been serious discrimination when you have a black man or at least half a black man in the White House. Um, how much discrimination? Who elected him? The country's Negroes? No, he was elected by whites. Right. That's who put him in the White House. And you can't look at that and say, oh, this country's all racist. The white people are depressing the blacks. No, they're not. No, they're not. Um, in fact, our complaint is not, we're not oppressing blacks. We're carrying them. Well, and- We're subsidizing them. And all they do is, that, and, and the impression that comes to me is, oh, we need more, more, more. Hey, get a job. Figure it out. Well, you know, and the thing is, I, on one hand, reasonably, I could say, yeah, you're right that, you know, Barack Obama, here he is, a, 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 somebody who at least is accepted as a black man, and obviously he was elected by m- the majority of whites because there's just not enough blacks in America to elect a president on their own. 
you know, so here he is, and you would think, well, okay, fine. Now, are you happy? You know, I mean, come on. But no. honestly, since he's been president, race relations seem at least to have gotten worse. Why do you think that is? I, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know because I, I can only imagine that it's we want more, 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 but I don't know on what. I don't know. I don't know. I think the answer is that if there were no racism, they'd have to invent it. Racism is a very lucrative philosophy. There are people that gain a lot of power and a lot of money by claiming to be victims of racism. And what I'm saying is that blacks need racism. They don't want to get rid of it. They want to be able to milk it for the next 50, 50 or 100 years. And say, give me, give me more, give me more, give me more. Look, my skin is black, so give me something for free. Because I have to carry the burden of slavery. Get over it. You know, I've mentioned on this program in the past, my grandparents were slaves. On my father's side, they were Russian serfs. They were, they were property of the czar before they came to this country. All right? I could sit here in theory and uh, whine and cry about the burden of slavery. I never had any such burden. I suppose if it was lucrative enough, I could, you know, <laughs> learn to work the room and say, oh, here, let me pass the hat, and you can all put some money in it for the poor ex, the poor grandson of slaves. You know, <laughs> it's not that, you know, because, yeah, we, we have a racism problem. We've got the Jesse Jacksons and the Al Sharpens and the... Louis Farrakhan's out there, but we also have, you know, this is an industry of of racism or some kind of ism because we also have the ADL. Oh, you know, the Jews were persecuted. Well, how long yeah, ago yeah, was yeah. that? And then we have the Southern Poverty Law Center. Yep. And they just pick whoever, you know. Oh, it's the transgenders is their is their thing that are being oppressed. You know, there's this this whole industry, and it's you know. It's not just the blacks that are profiting. No, it's a racket doing. that they it's can profit. run. A, if they can run this as government, any group that's out there, um, form a group, petition your congressman. If you can build up the uh, public awareness, the congressman will speak out on your behalf, and you can get some money funneled to your group. You know, it's racket, 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 and it has nothing to do with working for a living. Well, it doesn't have much to do with working for a living. It's a question of whining for a living, hustling for a living, and blaming somebody else for your problems. And from my perspective, you know, I don't live in a black community. I don't claim that I, you know, some of my best friends are black and the rest of that sort of thing. But it, I've had to listen to it for 50 years of my life or more. And it just gets tiresome, you know. When is it going to end? I wish someone in the black community would say, well, we're only going to need to get Whitey to support us for another 200 years. And then we will be equipped to compete. Free, free at last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think they want racism. They need racism, in my opinion, as an excuse for the, the abject failures that are commonplace among the African American people, they're not. They're not. They don't. That doesn't describe everybody who's black, but it describes a lot of people that are black who are living in poverty. 
who are undereducated or maybe not able to be educated. Uh, there are problems that no, no, no doubt that the African-American community has problems that need to be resolved one way or the other. But they're not going to be resolved if no one is willing to diagnose the problem. Well, and the main problem I see, which is a real easy answer, because it usually is, is government. They've created this. They have exasperated this problem to the point where it's 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 overwhelming uh, a lot of communities. How did they do that? Well, through welfare, through affirmative action, through all the uh, entitlements. And that's the point. There is the point, and they call it entitlement, and they call them entitlement programs, and they say you are entitled to special treatment. Why? Because of the color of your skin. That's all. Yep. And all right. And that's what is dangerous, stupid, maybe even deadly. Well, you know, it doesn't take a genius to see the hypocrisy in somebody saying, well, we want to get rid of racism by uh, encouraging racism. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure out, wait a minute, there's something inherently wrong with this idea. You know, you're going to get rid of racism by creating a situation of racism? Yeah, I know. Again, there's people out here that need racism. Whatever whatever residual evidence there is of racism in this country, and I don't doubt that there is some. I'm not arguing that there's not, but I'm saying it's, it's relatively trivial compared to the mentality, the vast majority of the people, and the at least whites in this country. The people that need racism as an excuse. I've seen one video where some woman is telling her children that she hates white people. They want to tell their kids, and the kids learn to hate white people from their parents. Why do the parents hate white people? Because it provides an excuse for failure. I didn't fail because I'm black. I failed because the whites wouldn't let me win. Well, it also provides a future of failure for that kid. Yeah, I agree. You know, but the thing is, in America, the way I've seen it and, you know, been around and what I've experienced is, yeah, there is personal, you know, prejudices and there are personal racism from everybody. You know, everybody has their thing and, and some people less than others, but generally people like to hang out with people like them. Yep, people that look like them, they talk the language they talk, they have the similar background, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what we don't have in America anymore, at least to a, 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 a you know, I'm sure it's happened here and there, but it doesn't happen all the time or even the majority of the time is institutionalized, you know, racism. Institutionalized Other than affirmative racism. action. Well, yeah, that that's the only thing, but that's supposedly good racism. Yeah, yeah this I is a good that's kind justifiable of racism. racism. Right. And we're as whites, we're supposed to just sit there and say, well, we don't mind being discriminated against on a racial basis. We don't mind being held accountable for a debt that we never incurred ourselves based on merely the color of our skin. We think this is just wonderful and fine. And it creates resentments against blacks. And it certainly should create resentments of against everybody in government who fosters this craziness. Well, it really, but they help. and that—that's—that's that's the thing. 
blacks, whites, Mexicans, everybody needs to recognize who the real enemy is here, and it's not each other. It's the government. It really yeah. is them. And, and you yeah. know, if you work in the government, you're my enemy. I, I'm sorry. I, you might be a nice person and all, but, you know, it, it's just gotten to the point where you've got to draw the line somewhere, and if you're in the government, you're my enemy anyway because you're doing wrong and you've done wrong for so long, and you're you're... I get it. You know, you got to have a I got to make a living. It's for my kids. I got to have, you know, put food on the table. Find a real job. You know, I mean, federal government employees are what? Getting paid twice as much as the people yeah. that do the same job in the private sector? And not only that, in many instances they can retire after 20 years while the poor sap who's working for ultimately social security, if he lives long enough to collect it, he's going to have to work something like 45, 50 years before he actually gets to retire. All right? Government gets early retirement, double pay, and a retirement program that makes social security look like, you know, jump change. Um, the, and the we are supposed line. to sit back and say, oh, the government, you guys are doing such a tremendous job. Working so hard, it's only fair that you be re- able to retire after 20 years. It's only fair you could be t- paid double what you could make in the private in the private sector. You're a bunch of rip-off artists cut from the same cloth as the blacks who are claiming they are entitled to compensation for the fact that their great-great-grandparents were slaves. Well, this is the whole thing, is that, you know, everybody is just basically taking what they can get yeah, no. As much as they can get, and not worrying about what's, you know, did I work for it? Did I earn it? Uh, what no. am I doing? No, just country? show me the money. Yeah, show exactly. me the money. Huh? You greed, know, Cuba Gooding, good. Gooding and good. the one, yeah, greed is good. Yeah. Show me the money. Just get it. And that's one of the things that really, it's not unusual. The attitude isn't unusual, and it's certainly not confined to any one race. Mm-mm. But I don't, you know, what you do see of African Americans, right? It seems true more so there than I, than it is among whites, but it's true everywhere, you know, to some degree. It's just a question of having the money. Doesn't matter how you get it, just get it, right? And if you get a deal in drugs, fine. Pornography, fine. Prostitution, fine. Whatever works. Well, look at right? Wall Street; they're mostly white. I agree. <laughs> you know. They're cut from the same cloth. It's all about having. It's not about earning. And that's a big problem from my perspective. People yep. need, you know, and this is part and parcel. From my perspective of what appears to be a black culture, people complain, black people, oh, we're not making enough money, we're not doing it. Well, that's true. But part of the reason is your culture. It's true. Got the idea that you can be black, you can embrace the black culture, and still make as much money as whites. You know, the sad thing, though, too, and I go back to government's the enemy, because I believe they're the ones that did this. This hasn't always been the black culture. You know, I understand that. It goes to that entitlement thing in this business about we have to respect other people's culture and blah, blah, blah. How stupid can you be? You're going to embrace a culture that keeps you in poverty. How stupid can you be? Because I guarantee the black culture is responsible for at least 
a significant proportion of blacks' problems. Well, and if you want to go back, okay, so, oh, all right, if we're going to go back 150 years and blame, you know, the existing people now for something that ended 150 years ago, well, then let's go back 150, 200 years, and let's look at the black culture. What was the black culture then? The black culture was murdering tribes, capturing the men and the women, and selling them as slaves. Yeah. That's where the slaves came from. No, I know. White traders went to Africa and started uh, lassoing, you know, blacks running across the, uh, you know, Serengeti or anything like that. Mm -hmm. They went to auctions where they were sold by their own people. Yep. You know. That's exactly right. The first people to enslave the blacks were other blacks. You know, so they. And then they sold them off to the Arabs, and the Arabs sold them to the Dutch, and the Dutch hauled them over here to to the Caribbean and then on into the United States. Yeah. I mean, so this is not a great culture to be going, well, gee, let's, you know, okay, maybe the clothing is nice, but, all right, great. You know, but you've got to look at the whole thing and say, well, all right, you know, maybe that was a fail there, and uh, maybe we maybe we should try to assimilate into this culture, which blacks, at least from what I read in history, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, were doing that. Yeah, I agree. They were doing it. In a segregated way. Yep. But they were doing it. Yeah. They were embracing this culture, and you're right. It was segregated. I, that's true. But they had their own shops. They had their own stores. They had their own businesses. And I saw a report years ago that blacks were actually, on their own, were reducing the the economic gap between themselves and whites, doing it all by themselves after World War II on up to about 1964. You know, and that's the whole thing. Then the civil rights movement comes in, and mm-hmm. the government starts saying, well, uh, you know, the southern states were saying, well, yeah, segregation, equality, but segregated. And, well, that's what was going on naturally. Yep. The minute the, the, minute the government stuck its dirty little fingers in it and said, oh, well, we're going to segregate, you know, you're going to have different schools. Well, these are government schools. And all of a sudden, then you see, well, look, the black schools don't have books, they don't have teachers, they don't got any money, because why? Well, it got robbed, that's why. It got robbed by corrupt politicians who said, well, we don't care about them anyway, and they're not going to do anything anyhow, and they're segregated anyway, and they don't vote for us any, so who cares? And they basically do the same thing now, they just do it to everybody now. And, And it... It was natural. There's nothing wrong with natural segregation. If people want to live separate and they want to be with their own kind, I mean, it's the most natural thing to happen. This is why when you, you know, one of the one of the things people come to like a place like New York City as a tourist, they come to see the diversity. To not because everybody is forced to live in the same place next to each other and wear the same clothes and all that, but because they've got Chinatown, they've got Little Italy, they've got all these different neighborhoods that retain their culture. They all live there voluntarily. Nobody made them live there. Harlem was the same way. It had its own culture. And yeah, it was mostly black, but nobody made them live there. They lived there because, hey, this is where blacks live. We've got our own nightclubs. We've got our own stores. We've got our own economy going on. But now they've, they've changed the meaning of diversity to mean, well... Instead of being separate and, you know, you've got a lot of different choices. Now, no, everybody's in the same bucket and it's all gray and there's diversity. 
Well, there's people in the African-American community that complain that one of the problems with integration, all right, after World War II and whatever, is that they did have their own businesses. They had their own stores and shops and so on. Hey, it was separate but equal, like, you know, I mean, which is a, a phrase that uh, has been condemned. Uh, but, and I'm not arguing for it, but I am observing that when they were separate, they had their own. Once they became allegedly integrated, there were white people that moved in and said, well, I can run this store better than you can. And before it was done, the blacks lost a bunch of their, the stores that they'd previously owned and operated on their own, and they'd been self-employed and whatever, and much of that disappeared. And it's part of the, you know, it's part of the detriment. But it's not evidence of oppression. No, no, it's not. It's evidence mostly of greed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and oh, by the way, exactly what you described—the same exact thing has happened in Los Angeles, like East Los Angeles. That used to be black. Yeah. Not anymore. They've been well, driven out of East LA. The blacks have been driven out of there by the Mexicans. Yep. You know, so it's and then you've got Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton telling the black community they need to saddle up with the illegal aliens because we're all oppressed. Oh, you know. I really got to wonder. Everybody's working the racket. Everybody's working the racket. We can make some money off this deal if we play it right, and we'll get Whitey to pay our bills. You know, what was it? Something about the illegal aliens. I don't know. I saw a survey where 51% of them are here. Uh, 51% of the illegal aliens are on welfare right now in this country. Whitey, effectively is supporting the illegal aliens that come up here, at least 51% of them. It's like going to Mexican heaven. We'll go to, let's move to the United States, and the gringos will support us, and we can kick back and live a lifestyle that's probably more prosperous than we could accept, expect in Mexico, and we don't have to work. Well, and you know, I, I cannot blame those people for doing that. Who I blame are the bureaucrats and the elected officials that are allowing this to happen. Because, I agree. Because, you know, this is like no way. If you're here illegally, there is no way you should be entitled to I anything. agree 100%. You know? Everybody who cooperates with this, these illegal aliens, they want to call them undocumented immigrants. No, they're illegal aliens. In another, you know, if we saw the same thing back in the 1940s, we would call it a Nazi invasion where people were pouring into a country, the Nazis are pouring into Poland, they're pouring into France, they're using tanks and guns to force their way in. You don't need tanks or guns to force your way into this country, because the whites and the people who live here aren't able to defend it. You don't need a gun to break in. It's like they've got to be. It's like leaving the front door to your house open and being surprised when people steal the money out of your house because you don't have a safe. You don't need to be a safe cracker to get this guy's money. He just leaves it out in the kitchen table and the door's wide open. Just walk in and help yourself. Yeah, That's and every the way day this is right now. And every day he puts more money on the kitchen table and puts signs outside yeah, saying exactly. money's on the table. Come yeah, on right. in. You know, I mean, it's really gotten to the point where, you know, this administration is clearly encouraging illegal aliens to invade the country. Yes, and they've been did. Clint uh, uh, Bush absolutely encouraged them to come in. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know, certainly Barack Obama has, probably Clinton has. Uh, yeah, and why? Why did they do that? Why are they being encouraged? Well, you know, I, I think there's a few reasons, but uh, the one obvious reason is cheap labor. And not just cheap labor, okay? Not just the obvious, oh, Mexicans will work for less. But the cheap labor they create, because as more Mexicans come in and work for less, whites will have to accept less. Yep. They will have to also work for less. So they lower the whole wage scale across the board. Mm-hmm. I think that's certainly one of their motivations for doing this. And also, I think they really have a one-world order uh, agenda where they really do want to destroy Western European culture. I agree with that. And beyond that, they want a North American Union that consists primarily of Mexico, the United States, and Canada wedded into, ultimately, a single political entity. Mm-hmm. And they intend to accomplish that by simply flooding this country with so many Mexicans that by the time people wake up to what's going on, there'll be too many to drive them back to their home country. Well, and, and, and I think at the at the core of it all also is, and, and yes, we've come a long way and we've had problems, but the United States was for many years the beacon of Christianity. Yep. And they want to destroy Christianity a lot. Uh, Barack Obama is openly hostile towards Christianity. This administration and the government as a whole has been, since Johnson, hostile towards Christianity. Why? When he did the 501c3, that was, uh, you know, that might have looked like a nice thing, but that was an attack on the Christian church. Why are they trying to attack the Christian church? Because I believe Christianity is the true religion, and and it's... And it, it's a it's a religion They're of freedom. They're not trying to attack the Muslim faith. It's a religion of freedom. Not in this country. It is a religion of freedom, and you know, basically, the Father in heaven is the sovereign, but we're like little sovereigns, and I, you know, and that that they don't want that. I agree. You know, I'm going to chase this. First off, Pat Buchanan wrote a book that I don't recall the title of. Uh, back probably a decade ago, maybe more than that, but his argument was that Christendom has been the source of everything that passes for civilization in the modern world. And by Christendom, he means Europe, and then the United States, and Australia, and New Zealand. It means the countries that are dominated by that faith. And with that faith, people have risen, they have elevated themselves to levels of freedom and levels of prosperity that were previously unknown in the world. Nobody says that's happened with Muslim faith. Right? Nobody else says, you're going to, certainly not the Hindus. Uh, there's nothing else. You this know, is, Barack Obama. Foundation, and they want to strip, get you people away from Christianity. They want to get you out of Christendom and get you into some sort of, believe anything you want, but don't believe the Christian faith. Well, that's and right. It, it, it's one of the things that encourages me to be a Christian. It's the one faith in the world that seems to be attacked, mm-hmm. right? Disparaged. Oh, you don't want to be a Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you are, you certainly don't want to use that King James Bible. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, yeah, the things they attack are the things that you've got to look at it, take a second look and say, you know, if, if the herd thinks it's bad, then I need to look at this again. 
Yeah, and, I know. Um, you know, and Obama gets on there and talks about, well, the Muslims, you know, they've made a contribution to, uh, like, algebra. Well, okay. Yeah, they did. How many centuries ago? Yeah, and that? that's true. And that's true. What have they done since? What have they done lately? Well, and that's the whole thing. You see, the thing that we, we you know, yeah, if you if you kind of look at history, and I, I like history because I find it interesting. And, yeah, the Muslims were edu- highly educated, but this was during when Western Europe, well, Europe, was having the Dark Ages after the yep. Roman Empire fell. Yep. You know, so Western civilization basically hit a speed bump, and the Muslims, you know, didn't. And so, oh, well, look what Not we can right do. Then. But they did hit a speed bump later on. Yeah, I think they're still right. hitting it. Yeah, I know. They're in it. They're, they're caught in that speed bump. It's not just a speed bump. It's a speed ditch, and they have fallen into the ditch. I've seen one report that they, there's only a handful of books written by Muslims every year. So far as I know, when was the last time a Muslim won the Nobel Prize? They, they, are be not, they have embraced a, a medieval faith. It, it must be discrimination. Yeah, that's it. It's not their fault. It can't be their culture or their faith. It's somebody else holding them down. But in fact, there's been two entities, one in England and one in Europe, um, researchers. And they have, they have calculated that because of the Muslim faith, the people who believe in that faith are genetically impaired, or at least they are if they've been long-term Muslims. We've had about 800 years of the Muslim faith and something like eight centuries. And one of the problems they've had is that the Prophet Muhammad married his first cousin. And everyone in the Muslim faith seeking to emulate Muhammad are marrying their first cousins. And the result is so much inbreeding that Muslims, who at least if they have been his... I don't mean someone who converts to Muslim faith today. But I mean if they've been Muslims for several centuries, if they trace that lineage, they are genetically impaired by inbreeding where they are, um, according to the reports, they can't see as well in the dark. Right? I've seen people talk about fighters, uh, uh, aircraft, jets and whatever. You can't get a Muslim to fly those airplanes at night. They can't see in the dark. They are more prone to mental illness. They're more prone to birth defects. And this is a function of their faith. I've heard that it reduces their, their IQ. And this is probably part of the reason why they don't produce any books. The only book they do, they read, right, the only book they read is the Koran. And it leaves them trapped in something where... You can look at this, I look at it from a spiritual perspective, and I'm saying, look, if the Muslim faith were really God's favorite faith, if this was the one true faith, why would God have cursed his people with a genetic impairment that is inherent? They've now got 800 years of this stuff. You take somebody out of a Middle Eastern country that's been inbreeding as Muslims for the past eight centuries, they're not going to shed this. This isn't something that they're going to just come out and say, ha-ha, I'm going to, okay, we're going to stop marrying our first cousins and we'll be okay. No, you won't. <laughs> I mean, this genetic impairment, for me, is evidence that the Muslim faith is false. Well, if, if they were really connected to God, if that was a faith God wanted and he really 
why would he impair his own people? Well, and that's that's one example, but the the greater example is the whole idea that the nations that follow Christianity have been basically the beacon of civilization yeah. on the earth. Yeah. You know, as a whole. And uh, you know, there you go. I mean, the Chinese have been around for 6,000 years. They've had a they have had a consistent culture for that whole time. But Gee, we're all caught up in just 250 years. How'd that happen? You know, I'm sure the Chinese a- ask themselves that a lot. What do you think is an explanation? Well, God. I, I I'll think, tell you another I think one. I've you get about. blessed when you follow the Lord. I agree with that. I agree with that. And you get cursed when you turn away. All right, and there is the great danger. I mean, people say, oh, we don't need to follow God anymore. Well, maybe not. <laughs> mm. But you better have plenty of food and water and whatever else you might need stored up because it could be that he's not going to, you know, this isn't the kind of thing that you just turn your back on God. And he's, okay, go ahead. Yeah, it better be stored up somewhere that's fireproof and floodproof and tornado-proof yeah, and every other proof. Meteor-proof. Yeah, you know, so, you know, I mean... Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and and people can laugh and they can deny it, and, and that's fine, and they can believe what they want, but I can at least point to a world history that doesn't, you know, disprove what I'm saying. Yeah, I understand. Oh, sure, okay, it might not prove it. You could say, well, that's all just coincidence, and it was just a, you know, lucky roll of the dice or whatever, you know, but okay, that still doesn't disprove it. You know, that, you know, this is what I think, and, and, and it seems as though world history does not disprove that idea. So, I don't know, I'd, I'd go with that. Uh, well, I'll tell you another one. You go, I, I've talked about this a number of times on, the, at least once or twice maybe on this radio program. I bring it up, I brought it up a couple of times on the afternoon program we do on financial survival. Um, over the years, I've brought it up a couple of times friend of mine, woman I know, she moved to China and lived there for a year. And while she was there, she had a guide all the time. There was always a guide that was not that she necessarily wanted a guide, but it was assigned by the Chinese government. She had to have a guide to take her around and see where she was going, whatever. And she noticed the guide would never take her to any of the local, the uh, the restaurants that were close to her apartment. And She finally cornered the guide and asked, why? Why won't you take me? They said, well, because they... And the guide gave her some cock and bull story that she knew wasn't true. And the guide finally said, well, because they... And she kept pushing. No, what's the real reason? What's the... And she says, well, we know that you Americans keep dogs and cats for pets. And over here, we have them for dinner. All right? And I didn't want to take you into a restaurant that served dog and cat. And they do in these, in these restaurants that are close by. All right? But once she went on deeper into this, it's part of the Chinese culture to lie to maintain harmony. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not an occasional thing. They're taught to do it. They, they have learned to tell us and tell each other whatever has to be said to maintain harmony. And if you've got to tell a lie, tell a lie. It's all okay. Well, the Christian faith is, I'm not saying nobody lies by any stretch of the imagination in the Christian faith who claims to be Christian. I'm not saying none of them lie. But the faith at least says don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Mm-hmm. All right? It would seem to be, while the Christian faith is saying don't lie, the, the, the Chinese 
culture is saying, yes, lies are important and you've got to maintain. All right, and my, uh, my, my point is I don't want to ride on an airplane where the people who tighten the bolts and hold the wings on the side of the, on the, side of the fuselage are encouraged to lie. When somebody says, did you tighten the bolts? Uh, did you tighten the bolts on that wing? Hong? And Hong's, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, not, don't worry about a thing. I, we torqued them down just exactly to spec. I don't want to ride on that airplane. Yeah. All right? And this is part of the problem. If you have a culture where people are encouraged to lie, all right, I don't see how that can be a reliable culture. Now, Chinese, they may be, right now, the biggest Christian community in the world may be located in China. Yeah. Right? So they're making changes, and they're changing their culture around, and there's going to be some sort of cultural division there before this is done. And I'm not, and I think that's a good thing. But historically, China, their faith, I don't know, Confucianism, I think, is what's predominant in China. It encourages them to lie to maintain harmony. Well, you can't maintain a sophisticated economy when people are inclined to tell lies. Well, that's the same thing is true in this country. You've got a government, they don't do anything but lie. Well, and now if we look at, you know, and I've told people this the last, I don't know, five, ten years, is like, look, you know, that whole back in the day when we used to look for, well, let's look to make sure this is made in the good old USA because that means quality. Well, not so much anymore, because I have bought some stuff that's made in the USA that's just as junkly, badly made as anything from China. And, and you know, it's this cheap, thin, plastic garbage, and, yep. and it's made here. Why? Why is it low quality? Well, well, money, 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 you know, got to save exactly that money. Right. But the thing also... But it's not just you got to get the money. The point is, can you afford to make a high-quality product... In this country, if comparable products are being made in China with labor that's working for a fraction of the price of American labor. Well, no, but if you want to stay in business, you've got to cut corners someplace. Well, that's true. But the next thing you know, you have a shoddy product. You have low, you know, it has uh, the the, the amount of metal in the product is diminished. The the, uh, plastic is substandard, blah, blah, blah. I think that the best example is the United States auto industry. And, you know, because that's something everybody's familiar with. And the thing is, it's more than just, I believe it's more than just money, too. Because, you know, hey, you know, a Japanese car, wherever a car comes from, they all pretty much cost the same. Yep. And they're all pretty much, you know, other than, you know, and the American car makers have gotten good. But I remember in the 70s, man, Dodge had a real quality problem. I mean, they they were putting out new cars that didn't even fit together right. Yeah. And I think part of it is, sure, it's the money, but the other part is the Christian faith. That, you know, part of the Christian faith is you do the best job you can, you don't lie, you put in a hard day's work, you get what you earn, you know, and, and, you know, a a workman is worthy of his uh, hire. And that whole idea, well, less and less people are grasping that part of Christianity, at least, because, I mean, gosh, a lot of Americans say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to the fellowship down the thing, and, you know, and if you walk in there, all you hear is singing, and everything's good, and God loves you, and all you have to do is believe, and uh, put your money in the deal, and sin all you want, because you're under grace, and don't worry about a thing, and 
we got this new Bible that's really easy to read, and uh, and there's no sin in it, and it's just great, you know. And well, that's not the same Christianity that was here in the United States in the fifties, you know, when Made in America really was a quality product. I know. We're still capable of great innovation, right? perhaps more so than any other nation on Earth. How long that's going to last remains to be seen. But once someone comes up with a new, an innovative product, service, whatever, first thing that happens is they're sold out to some major corporation. Yeah, because the government's and, there to uh, kill you by regulation and saying, well, good, that's a great idea. Now you're going to have to do this, that, and the other thing. And uh, the only one that can afford it is a huge corporation. So they come in and uh, buy you out. Or, and that's if they hadn't already stolen your patent. You know, it's, it's it's really gotten bad in America for for business and really, you know, I mean small business, the yes, the, the startup mom and pop business. Things have gotten. What's the difference hostile. between small business and big business? Well, one that seems the government is trying to destroy you, and the other one, the government's trying to subsidize you. And why is that? Control. Because this big business has a big business by definition, has enough money to bribe congressmen, senators, and even presidents. Well, that's true. Small business can't afford it. They're too busy working and trying to hang on. All right? I mean, one of the hallmarks between you want to see small business, we've got over here on the left-hand side, we've got small business. Over on the right-hand side, we have big business. What's the difference? Big business bribes government to pass laws to allow the big business to extort even more money out of the great unwashed. Now, I know years back, the majority of businesses were small businesses in the United States. Oh, yeah. That was the economy. Do you think that's still the way, or has no. that shifted? Absolutely. I read a study back, I, I read a report back, I don't know, eight months, 12 months ago, something like that. It pointed out that back when I was a kid, in the 1950s and 60s, 25% of the people in this country who had jobs were self-employed. One in four. And I can remember the country at the time, and it was my impression is that it was as if it all had a fresh coat of paint on it. People were prosperous and getting along just fine. But the government steps in and starts regulating, and now it's something like one in 25 that's self-employed. I have no doubt that this is one of the fundamental reasons why our standard of living has not increased. Yeah. Government regulation has driven people out of business and say, oh, we're here to help you and we're here to protect you and the rest of that sort of thing. I know people who are competent and more than competent to do a number of different jobs. A friend of mine is air conditioning. All right. He does superb work, but he's not licensed. And he has a problem keeping employed because he doesn't have a license to do that particular trade. I, I know people who can't pass the exams. I know people who can't do the paperwork. They can do the job, but they can't do the paperwork that the government wants done in order to regulate and supposedly protect the public. And all they really do is put these people out of business. They, they get them. They, where do they go? They go on to welfare rolls in some instances at least. Because they can't go out and just do the job. You can hire people that are very capable, but they can't do the paperwork. 
Well, or they end up working for a big company as a, and they're just a cog in the machine that way. And, you know, this is like centralization. And there's, you know, communism and fascism are both based on a centralized uh, organizational sort of thing. Central planning. You know, and that's... I mean, it's undeniable that that's the way things have gone. Now, everybody can say, well, it's just the way, well, you know, just all big accident, and it just, no. I, yeah, know, and they act as if it's a natural evolution. Yeah. And it's not. It no. doesn't, it, it, it may be that it's happened before, but it doesn't have to happen. You could sit back and look at fundamentals and say, you know, this country would be better off if we had more people who were self-employed, and we could do that if we get this regulatory burden off their backs. Well, and the thing is, it's everything but natural. It's exactly the opposite of natural. It's unnatural, and that, this is the whole thing. You see, it's like forced vaccinations and all these other things that they mandate. You don't have to force people to do good ideas, usually. Sure, there's always going to be people that resist, but the majority of people, if it's a good idea, if it's helpful to me, if it benefits me, sure, I'm going to do it. You don't have to force me to do it. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's like, well, hey, these vaccines are really good for you, and that's why we're going to force them on you. It's like, no, you don't force good ideas. You only force bad ideas on people that they don't want to yeah. do. Yeah, and you know, one of, the, one of the other hallmarks of a good idea, it can generate a profit all by itself. Yeah. All right? People will say, hey, this is a good idea. I'm going to do this. What happens? That good idea is rewarded. The people who propagate that idea are are, are not always, but typically rewarded just by making more money, and they become rich. I came up with a good idea. Now I'm actually prosperous because I came up with a good idea. And someone else sees that example, and they say, hey, if you come up with a good idea, you can actually make more money in this country. And so they look for it. People look for it. They become innovative um, uh, and in hope of generating a greater profit. In this country right now, go ahead, try to be innovative. I mean, we still do great innovative things. They tend to come out of the corporations now rather than the small businesses, but there's still an a streak of innovation in this country that's unparalleled, but I think it's residual. I don't know that it's growing. I don't know that it's diminishing, but it's, to me, we would be better off with a stronger self-employed base. Well, everybody's gone to the, you know, the whole Edison model where, you know, okay, Thomas Edison's name's on everything like he was some great man, but mostly what he did was he set up a sweatshop for scientists. Yeah. You know, and every idea they came up with, he claimed he it's mine. For. It's yeah. it's the company, it's Edison's idea, you know, and he patented it and he took it and do you know now they they've changed the patent laws? The patent uh they have now gone to not a first like, okay, if you're the inventor, it always used to be, well, you invented it. You get first crack at the patent. Yep. Not anymore. Now it's the first one in the patent office door to file the paperwork gets the patent. And not only that, I can't say that this is God's truth, but it's my understanding that when you file for a patent, a modern patent, it's my understanding that you are surrendering legal title or whatever you've produced to the government. You still maintain equitable title, but historically the creator owned both legal and equitable titles to whatever it was he produced. 
if you take a government patent right now, it's my strong suspicion, and I haven't, I can't prove it, but it's my strong suspicion that you take that patent, you will give legal title to the government, you will have equitable title, you get the first use of it, you can, you have a lot of advantages, which is the same. You don't really own it, and they can regulate you if they want to. Well, I don't think that's new. I mean, let's ask Tesla. Oh, I think, you know. Well, it's hard to say when it started, but I think it's relatively new. I think it's probably, it's been something they've worked for for for, for a long time, but I think it's only been enshrined at least in my lifetime. I would say since the 1940s, maybe later, maybe even from the 1960s. I don't know when it... I, I don't even know that what I just said is absolutely true. I have a suspicion that it's true, but I can't prove it. But well, I've, I've heard, if you want to really control something and own it, you pretty much it may be incumbent on you to stay away from the federal copyright and federal patent applications. Well, and if you are, you better be real careful because, you know, these... You go to a lawyer. The whole thing is, and what, and this happens a lot. You got a patent. You're a scientist. You're not a lawyer. You don't know. Oh boy, I need a patent. So you go get a lawyer. He takes your patent, goes files it under his name. It's his patent now. Yeah. You can yeah. run down there and go, hey, he doesn't know squat. You know, he's no scientist. I am. I can explain that to you. It's my invention, and they'll tell you pound sand. Get out. He filed it. He was the first in the door. Yeah. He gets it. Which tells us what's more important, the inventor or the process that the government imposes on copyrights and patents? Yeah, well, it's gone back to that whole, I think you've told this story about, you know, somebody who uh, builds the house and who makes the money. Yeah. You know, the guy who builds the house makes some money, but nothing like the guys who loan the money to buy the house. That's exactly right. And they didn't build nothing. It's peanuts. And this is another one of the problems we have. We came into this debt-based monetary system where we have bankers where the debt instrument, when you go in and sign the mortgage and the note to get a house, let's suppose you're going to get a new house for a quarter million dollars. When you sign that piece of paper down to the bank on the mortgage and sign the note, those pieces of paper are worth far more than the house because they will be typically sold off. I'm, I mean, we, the, the, during, the, during the mortgage crisis and the subprime mortgage problems that we had that helped to precipitate the Great Re- Recession, um, at that point in time, they, they were selling those things in many instances. The bank would sell the paperwork the same day you came in and signed the document. And why would someone buy it? Because they could use it as collateral. And under fractional reserve banking, they could loan out nine times the face value of the note you'd signed. You signed a note for a quarter million dollars. If I bought that note, assuming I was a banker, if I bought the note for a quarter million dollars, plus maybe a percent and a half on top of that, I could turn around and deposit that note in my own bank vault. And then using that note as collateral, I could loan nine times 
that much the face value of that money. And we'll say ten just to keep the mathematics simple. I got it. I paid a quarter million dollars for a piece of paper. I deposited it in the bank vault, and now I can loan out two and a half million dollars. This is sufficient collateral to loan out two and a half million dollars. And if I'm doing this at a time when the interest rate is ten percent. 10% on the $2.5 million is a quarter million dollars. I make a quarter, I buy a piece of paper for a quarter million dollars. I use it as collateral to lend out $2.5 million. If I make 10% interest on it, I make a quarter million dollars in the first year. That's yeah. a 100% return on investment. Yeah, this is my stock market. Think they're doing great if they can get four or five percent, and this is a one hundred percent return on investment. Plus, I get that one hundred percent every single year. That mortgage is a valid debt instrument, which means if I signed a mortgage for thirty years for a quarter million dollars, some banker, in theory, depends on the interest rate, one thing or another like that. But in theory, at a 10% interest rate, this guy can make the equivalent of one of my homes. I'm going to get a house that I'm going to pay for two or three times based on interest rates over the course of the 30-year mortgage. I'm going to pay for that house probably three times. cost me $750,000 well, yeah, for a $250,000 house. But the guy that bought the paperwork, he can produce the equivalent of twenty or 30 separate homes this in terms based on is, the profits and that flow from what? From my signature. And this is why they didn't care if you could ever pay the mortgage or not. That's exactly right. That's why subprime mortgages were, hey, it just made good sense. The mortgage, the piece of paper, would somebody please bring me a bum, send some homeless guy <laughs> in here, sign on the line that you'll pay. We're going to give you a quarter million dollars. We're going to give you a quarter million dollar house. Just tell us that you're making, you know, 100000 a year. We're going to give you a quarter million Here's something dollars. interesting that when you said, you know, as long as that's a viable mortgage, you get, a, you get that, you know. Per interest. year. Ha. But people might say yes. But, you know, if you, you know, give the mortgage to somebody who defaults, it's no longer valid. But, oh, wait. What they started doing then is chopping it up into little pieces and selling right. it to 25, 30, 50 other banks to yep. where nothing could ever be traced back. And nobody ever knew if it was valid or not. It just exactly. kept floating around. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what you're doing on top of that? Here's the other thing that's really fun. You go borrow the money from your the ABC bank. <laughs> you allegedly borrow a quarter of a million dollars from them. And they they sell the mortgage to the XYZ Bank. They don't tell you about it, but they sell the mortgage. Do they notify you and tell you that you should now be making your mortgage payments to the XYZ Bank? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Even though they sold the mortgage, they keep on collecting sure. the, the the mortgage payments at the ABC Bank. That's our gravy. Yeah, yeah. Our they don't fine, even own our the finder, our You finders. don't have an obligation to pay these people because they don't have the paperwork anymore. Why? You would think, and you sit back and say, well, that can't be. Because yeah. surely the XYZ Bank, if they can make, they're getting the mortgage payments of <laughs> you know, $1,500 a month. I don't know, maybe fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year. They're making. They're just abandoning that. They they certainly want to get the mortgage payment. And I'm saying no, they wouldn't. 
That's chump change. It's nothing. It's a triviality. The money is in using the piece of paper as a debt instrument to generate, to lend out $2.5 million. They don't want to expose the racket. They don't want to expose the game by saying, oh, you don't need to pay the ABC bank anymore because the mortgage is now owned by the XYZ bank. Yeah, and 50 they other banks we chopped it up and sold in the it to. dark. And you keep paying the mortgage to people that aren't even entitled to receive the the funds. Yeah, it's a finder's fee. Yeah, it's just <laughs> I found this bomb. Hey, this so everybody's fun. getting paid off. Yeah, just except sh- the guy paying the mortgage. Yeah, and <laughs> and again, his signature alone is generating. In the hypothetical example, I won't. It isn't necessarily this way all the time by any stretch of the imagination. But in the hypothetical example I've I've illustrated, his signature on a 30-year mortgage could have paid for 30 homes of the sort he's living in. And he is going to pay for three homes, the price of three homes, for living in that, for living in that house by the time he gets done paying the interest on his loan over 30 years and so on. He's going to pay for the house three times. His signature is going to gen- thir- generate the equivalent of 30 of those homes for other people's wealth and profit. You would think that given that his signature produced ultimately the equivalent of 30 homes, quarter million dollars a year, in theory, hypothetical, right? you would think, okay, he signed it. Let's give him one house for yeah, free. Yeah, he gets to have that. What house. do you say? That's you get your house free and clear, and we'll because we're making all the rest of this money. All right, now you got a deal. Yeah, I'm right. not saying it's an ideal. I'm not even saying it's fair, but it's something a lot of people sit back and say, well, uh, you know, I just signed my name to a piece of paper and the house and the house is paid for because these guys are making so much money on my debt instrument that uh, it's only fair that I get a free house. Well, uh-huh. and really it is. And it sounds ridiculous to a lot of people. And uh, but it's true. It's the system that's going on. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not, you know, but it is what it is. And that is what's going on. The same thing about the credit cards. Yeah. It's your signature. It's your yeah. signature. It's your signature that does it all. And, and what are it signing? And what what is the significance of your signature? Well, you're creating commercial paper. You're creating no, no. debt. You are yeah. creating a debt instrument, and what kind of monetary system do we have in this country? Debt-based. Debt-based. In order for this system to prosper, we have to create more debt every single year, in part to, dis- to pay off the previous year's debt and the previous decade's debt and the rest of that sort of thing, and we don't actually ever repay any of this stuff. All we do is discharge it with debt instruments. The government's not repaying its debt. You know, they just wrote an article on this just in the last week or so, pointing out that our government used to, if you had money back in the 1920s, 1930s, and so on, that paper dollar, if if the government issued the paper dollar, the government would redeem that paper dollar out of government accounts. Right? In other words, if you accepted a paper dollar, you could go to the bank and say, look, I would like a silver dollar for this. Oh, okay, go ahead. Here, here's your silver dollar for your paper dollar. That's a payment. When you receive something tangible in return for your work or your property, you have been paid. You got something tangible. 
But if all you have is paper, the only thing you have is a promise to pay. Not a payment, a promise to pay. That's what all these debt instruments are. Now, if the government, if I were issuing checks, imagine I'm issuing a check, and I send you a check for $10,000, I give you a check for $10,000 to pay for a used Ford pickup truck. All right? You are not paid when you get my check. You are paid when you get something tangible, and particularly when you put that check through the ma- through this banking system and it's charged to my bank account. All right? If I issue the check, it has to be charged to my bank account, and they move $10,000 from my account to yours. All right? When the government issues the Federal Reserve notes... It used to be that you could redeem these against government accounts by going in and changing them in for gold or silver. But they said, forget that. We're not going to redeem these anymore for gold or silver. Right now, if you have a $100 bill and you want to redeem it, what happens when you go to a Federal Reserve Bank? They gave you a brand new $100 bill. Yeah, that's right. That's all you can get out of this. You don't ever get. Now, the result, you don't ever get a tangible payment. Who is making the payment on the $100? I go to work for somebody, and I get $100. Who is making the tangible payment on that $100? Well, the one that you're giving it to and getting it something from. Yeah, I know. But the one I'm giving it to is not the government. No, it's not the signatures on that note. Yeah, which means that this is equivalent to where if I was running, if I, if I had a checking account, and people, I have a checking account, and nobody ever redeems their check against my account. I can buy, when I pay $10,000 for that pickup truck of yours, right, or I write a check for $10,000, I don't actually ever pay because nothing is charged to my account. I got a free pickup. And once I see that, I think, well, why waste my time on a used pickup? I could get a new Rolls Royce. <laughs> Nobody's. I could buy a mansion. I could buy a city block. I could buy a city, a county, a state, a nation. As long as no one charges the, the, the debt instruments that I'm issuing, the promises to pay, they're never charged to my account. How does it work out? I write the check for $100, essentially, or $10,000 in this example, to you. And and instead of depositing the check in the banking system to come against my account, you take the check out and find the guy across the street and trade it for his bass boat. Now you've been paid. You've received something tangible for your tangible pickup truck that you sold to me. And the guy who has the bass boat, he takes the $10,000 check out, and he finds some carpenter who's willing to install new cabinets in his kitchen to make his wife happy. Ten grand. Now he's got tangible cabinets. He's been paid. And the, and the cabinet maker, he, he gives a $10,000 check to some roofer to put a new roof on his garage. And it keeps on going and going and going. But here's the point. Who is redeeming my check? Not me. The public is redeeming my check. And the same thing is going on with the, with the Federal Reserve notes. They're never charged against the account of whoever, of the, of the federal government and or the Federal Reserve, who issues them. 
they are in a position to buy you and me and the city and the county and the house and ultimately the world because you and I are redeeming the federal government's Federal Reserve notes. They don't redeem. This is, again, if, I could, if, if no one were to redeem my checks, I guarantee you I can be fabulously wealthy <laughs> in a very short period of time, fabulously powerful. Why? Because nobody's redeeming my checks. Oh, they get redeemed by other people in the community. I write a check for $10,000. I give it to you. You get the check redeemed when you give it to the guy for the bass boat. Okay. But the guy with the bass boat didn't issue the check. I did. I'm getting over. I'm getting fabulously wealthy because I don't ever have to give something tangible. Well, here is the, uh, I just looked this up. Here's a 1914 $10 Federal Reserve note. And it says right under $10, this note is receivable by all national and member banks and Federal Reserve banks. Yeah. And for all taxes, customs, and other public dues, it yep. is redeemable in gold on demand mm-hmm. at the Treasury of the Department at the Treasury Department of the United States in the city of Washington, District of Columbia, or in gold or lawful money at any Federal Reserve Bank. Yep. Now, the only thing that I'm questioning here is it says now you can get gold at the Treasury. Yep. And you can get gold or lawful money at a Federal Reserve Bank. What exactly is lawful money? Uh, 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 Like a gold certificate? I'm going to guess that's the case of it. That's the case. But they're pointing you can get something yeah. physical in return for for your piece of paper. Sure. Now you have redeemed the piece of paper, and the most important thing is you are redeeming it with the people who issued it. It's again, if I write a check for ten grand, I'm the one who should be charged ten grand for your truck. And the way the system operates with Federal Reserve notes, that's not true. The public has become the sureties for government. The government issues these pieces of paper, these debt instruments, and the the average person says, "Oh yeah, I'll back the government on that." Here, let me you give me that piece of paper, and I'll give you I'll give you a pickup truck or a bass boat or new cabinets for your kitchen or whatever. But it's never charged to the government. Now, to say it's never charged, that's not entirely true. Even today, these Federal Reserve notes can be used to pay your taxes. All right. And in that sense, they are charged against a federal account. You know, I just looked up now a 1928 Federal Reserve note. Yep. And the the language has changed in a way. Remember, it said the Department of the Treasury. Yeah. Well, this one says redeemable in gold on demand at the United States Treasury or in gold or lawful money at any Federal Reserve bank. And then it says, we'll pay to the bearer on demand $100. Yep. Now, they changed the... I wonder if that's significant about the Department of Treasury. But the thing is, now I looked at... Compared to what? Just Treasury. United States Treasury versus Mm -hmm. the Department. The United States Department of Treasury. 
If you could read a dollar bill, any one of them, and really understand the language, these things are almost exquisite legal documents. And if you or I could read them and fully comprehend what they were doing, you would be ahead of, you would be ahead of 99.99% of all the people in this country. I don't know that I can read it accurately, but it is an exquisite legal document. Yeah. There isn't one comma on that document that doesn't have well, legal significance yeah. and everything is I mean that is nailed down tight. See that's what I'm wondering between saying, you know, the United States Department of Treasury in 1914 and then just saying the United States Treasury in 1928. Yep. Well, it's like, I mean, we have court system that's in since 1948, I believe, is when they made the change. It used to be the federal courts were district courts of the United States. But since 1948, if I recall correctly, but it might be as late as the 60s, I don't recall for sure. They changed the names of the courts from District Court of the United States to United States District Courts. And the average person thinks, well, that doesn't make well, you know. Well, why go through the effort? If we call them District Courts of the United States before, why do we give them a different name? I guarantee, and the difference is that the United States District Courts are territorial courts where the district courts of the United States were located within states of the Union. Hmm. Change the name. When they change those names, I've seen someone who's put out a book, I don't remember the name of it, pamphlet, more than a pamphlet, but not, not a real book, talking about Federal Reserve notes and the American currency system, and they list... Oh, 15, a dozen, maybe 20 variations on the language that's on those on the notes. And they go all the way back into the 1800s and maybe the 1700s, for all I know. And it says, and here's the language then. And then they change it mm -hmm. with a new and improved dollar bill. And then they change it again and change it again. Every one of those changes is significant. And the result is, you know, it's not just about creating a new and improved kind of money. No. It's about putting you into bondage. Yeah, or making it easier to read. Uh-huh. No, it's not that. <laughs> uh -huh. you this know, is about putting you and me into bondage. Well, here's one from 1934, and this is the year after gold was made illegal uh -huh. for United States citizens to have. This note is legal tender for yep. all debts, public and private, and is redeemable in lawful money at the United States Treasury or at any Federal Reserve Bank. It's no longer redeemable. I mean, it's uh, this now it's, well, legal it's redeemable tender. in lawful money, right? But not for gold because well, it was but it was illegal. still redeemable for silver. Yeah. Okay. I mean, silver didn't go out. They they stopped redeeming silver six nineteen sixty eight. They stopped. Right making silver certificates, if I understand correctly, in 1964, and they stopped redeeming them in 1968. Now, they stopped paying for, out of their account, they issued notes, they no longer redeemed the notes themselves. Those notes were being redeemed by the people. This is why we have to go into debt, right? Somebody's got to go into debt to borrow that money into circulation. That's another one of the problems. 
Everyone understands, oh, I won't say everyone, but a lot of people understand that the currency is loaned into circulation. People sit back and they say, oh, the federal government, or at least the Federal Reserve, can just spin this money out of thin air. Not exactly. It's true that they can print as many billions of dollars as they want to. That's for sure. There's no end to how many they can print. But how do they get them into circulation? They have to loan them into circulation. What happens if ultimately we don't have people willing to borrow? How do you get the money into circulation if the American people are so, I don't know, they've learned their lesson and they're not going into debt anymore and they're not borrowing, they're not creating any debt. Debt is our form of wealth in a debt-based monetary system. I think it's part of the reason why the recession has lingered since 2008. People aren't borrowing as much as they used to. We are not creating the debt that we need to run a debt-based monetary system. Well, and that's why they keep the uh, you know interest rates down around zero, to try to encourage people to, hey, getting in debt's not bad. It's not going to cost you hardly anything, although it does. I mean, you know, just because they're down by zero doesn't mean anybody's credit card is down by zero. You know, I mean, if... That's supposedly why they're doing it. But uh, Yeah, but it's not translating. Something's lost in the translation between the central bank and the credit card banks. And, and, you know, if they really wanted to get people to start spending, that's what they would do. They'd say, well, okay, hey, everybody's credit card is, you know, the interest rate's cut in half. Just boom, by decree, we're doing it now. But what's the problem with it? Well, you get people to get more in debt. Yeah, but where do you find people? Here's the problem. When you lower the interest rate, there's two people involved in every loan. There's the lender and the borrower. And when you have a super low interest rate, well, that's great for the borrower. But what's the lender got to say about that? Well, when you sit back and say, you think I'm crazy? You think I'm going to lend my currency to all those idiots out there ah. for, a, for a half a percent or a quarter but, of a percent of the base? He's going to say, I'm going to take my money, and I will lend it in Europe or Africa yeah, or South America. You see, when you're dealing with credit cards, that doesn't matter anyway because, hey, I'm going to create, well, I want that $1,000 refrigerator, so I signed for 1000 bucks. You take it, now you got $10,000 in debt that you're going to go out and lend. Yeah, you're not going to get as much interest on your, on your upside, but you're, still, you're going to get more people creating assets for you in theory unless the public gets so burned in yeah. the 2007 2009 that they just said i'm not borrowing anymore well and that's right? more and that, likely to happen just, just kept the economy slowed for the last six years or so now the one People thing i want borrowing as much as they did previously they're picking up on it to some degree but they're not creating the debt they need those debt instruments to deposit the bank so they can lend more the whole thing if we won't borrow this whole system if you won't go into debt it's antisocial <laughs> well yeah but what's what? wrong with you you're not going into debt well what happens when you know Janet Yellen finally says okay that's it we're raising the rates well, that doesn't seem like it's going to be conducive to more people getting in debt. Actually, it might nevertheless stimulate the economy. There was a report that came out right now about three weeks ago, a white paper from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. It was written by a guy named Williams or Williamson, I don't recall, but he's a vice president there. And he said, look, a couple of points Two points, two fundamental points in the report. First, quantitative easing has not worked. 
quantitative easing was intended to create inflation and the inflation would stimulate the economy and that hasn't happened right quantitative easing has wound up supporting the stock market that's true but its intent was to cause inflation which would cause which would allegedly stimulate the economy that didn't happen Quant QE hasn't worked. Didn't work in Japan, didn't work in Switzerland, hasn't worked in the United States. They're trying it in China, and it's virtually certain not to work over there either. The second point is he said history shows that low interest rates correspond to low inflation or even deflation. And he said when you have high interest rates, you typically also have high inflation rates and the implication is that when the government keeps the interest rate down around zero, the government is guaranteeing that we will have low levels of inflation and or even deflation, which is a hallmark of economic depression. And his recommendation, then, at least by implication, is we need to restore higher interest rates. The government needs to raise them contrary to its, 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 its it's contrary to intuition and, and, and conventional thinking, but his contention is we need to raise interest rates in order to raise inflation rates in order to stimulate the economy. Now, I don't know if this guy's theory is right or wrong, but he is a vice president of a Federal Reserve Bank, and that means he should know what he's talking about. Well, point, yeah, but point two, he may be sounding, giving people, you know, one of these previous, these early messages and say, look, we're going to raise interest rates and we're not going to raise them by a quarter of a percent. We're going to raise them by one percent or two percent. Right. And people scream, oh, my gosh, the world's coming to an end. Maybe not. Maybe it's really what this country needs, assuming anyone really wants to stimulate the economy. On the other hand, on the flip side. Maybe they're keeping the low interest rates. Oh, we're keeping low interest rates to help you poor borrowers out there. Yeah. Maybe it's not that. Maybe they knew all along it would tend to grind the economy down. But in any case, this white paper came out right now about three weeks ago from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Well, that could be. And, and either way, I, I think they're in a jam. I think no matter oh, yeah. which way they go... Uh, in the long run, uh, one way or the other may be good, but in the short term, I think either way is going to be bad, you know, for the short term anyway. And you know, it, it just why do you think so? Because you're saying either or no matter what they yeah, do, yeah, whether they raise the rates or screwed. lower the rates or leave it, you know, obviously leaving it the why? same isn't working. Well, because I think we're at the end of the Ponzi scheme is really what I think. I think which is. What Ponzi scheme? The economy, the the printing of money, this whole debt-based, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, thing that's is, what it is. You know, we've this come whole to the idea end. that this whole idea that we could have a debt-based monetary system is insanity, right? Yeah, it's worked for a couple of decades. Yeah, I give them credit. It worked. They've held it together at least since 1971, and they were building up to it before then. But we've had a pure fiat currency, a pure debt-based currency since 1971. It's crazy. It's insane. Right? It's like hiring a chimpanzee to drive a, a Mack truck down the highway. 
Yeah, and give them a gun. I guarantee while you're, it. you're gonna have a bad you're gonna have a situation here before this is over. The chimpanzee doesn't know how to drive. He may be capable of driving. He may get a big grin and a cigar while he's cruising down the road, but we're gonna have a problem. It was crazy to let the chimpanzee drive the truck. And it was crazy to allow governments to move into this debt-based monetary system where government never has to pay. That's never charged against the government's accounts. And I I, I think that, hey, look, the system itself, just like any system, you come up with a system, you go, hey, look at this. It works on paper. This will work out. Look at this. Okay, fine. Maybe. But then you add people. See, the big problem with this system is the greed that, you know, Somebody gets their hands on the system, and right away they figure, hmm, how can I benefit? That's right. Well, I don't really care about anybody else as long as I can benefit. Now, if somebody was running even the debt-based system in a responsible manner that says, well, okay, look, let's run this so everybody benefits the most that everybody can, it would probably work. Just like communism would probably work if everybody, you know, wasn't envious and wasn't jealous and everybody said, oh, yeah, yeah, let's be happy and all work and we'll all get paid and we'll all do this. And there was no Pulitzer Bureau or people in charge living in mansions while everybody else is poor and all that. And everybody, you know, did what the plan was on paper. But it never seems to be that way. You can come up with anything on paper that looks good, but then you add people to it and, well, things seem to always go south. Well, I'd say that this system was destined to fail from the beginning. Eventually, this I think was it was not have something. To. This was not something. There is no way that you're going to be able to run this system, and it's going to last indefinitely. Because what is a debt? In a debt-based monetary system, debt becomes our form of wealth. We, then the more debt you can go into, the richer you are. All right? If you're not going into debt, do you have a quarter-million-dollar home to live in? Do you have a new Mercedes to drive if you're not willing to get an auto loan? Do you have a quarter-million-dollar house unless you're willing, without being able, without getting a mortgage and going deeper into debt? You are rewarded. You become wealthy according to your credit rating. How deep can you go into debt? Well, the measure of your debt is the measure of how well you live in the society. Sure. I mean, even your car Homeless people have no credit. They're not in debt. Even your car And where are they? They're homeless. You're, you know, they're allowed to raise your car insurance rates if you have bad credit rating, which has mm-hmm. absolutely nothing to do with their risk factor. Yep. But yet they're allowed to do it. Yeah, I understand. Because you are punished right. for not going into debt. It's antisocial not to go into debt. Right? If you want to support this country, you've got to go into debt. But what is debt? It's nothing but a promise to pay. This is where we get the liar loans. Mm-hmm. All they had to do, promise you'll pay, and we're going to give you a new house. All right? You don't have to actually pay. Debt is just a promise to pay. And how hard is that? Right. Just sign Pretty soon here. people <laughs> understand this and say, you mean all I got to do is promise to pay a quarter million dollars and I get a quarter million dollar house? I don't actually have to pay it. I just have to promise it. And that's really the way it has worked to large extent. Now, in fact, the poor guy who puts up the, he promises to repay the quarter million, he's going to probably repay three quarters of a million on that house, and the people that buy his paper are going to profit perhaps as much as the equivalent of 30 of those houses over a 30-year mortgage. But 
the whole thing starts out with nothing but a promise. Well, and there are That's people. What, and it's easy to make promises. You don't have to go to work. I'm just going to promise. I don't have to actually produce anything. That's why the government, I think, didn't mind shipping our industries overseas. We don't need any industries. We don't need to produce anything. <laughs> All we have to do is generate promises in the form of Federal Reserve notes and U.S. Treasuries. And the world says, oh, look, a paper promise from the United States. That's really valuable. I'm looking at it. So it's, not, it's nothing but a freaking IOU from a bankrupt entity. Well, it really is. And, and that, you know, I, I read, you know, the UCC, not, not the whole thing, but I did read the whole thing about commercial paper. Yeah. And it's very, very enlightening if, if you can chew through it. Yep. And that's another one of those... You know, tr- go slow, reread, reread, reread uh-huh. over and over again, and then go, ah, I think I got that paragraph. And then on to the next paragraph. It takes a while, but it's very enlightening about commercial paper. And, you know, the whole, ah, well, hey, there's a dollar bill. Well, actually, it's a note, uh, and a note is a promise to pay. But actually, it gets even worse than that because really, these are, you know, a lot of people call them fraud notes. And yep. that's really what they are, because if you look in the UCC, they don't even rise to the level of a note. So to call mm-hmm. it a note is a fraud. Why don't they rise to the level of a note? Well, for one thing, there's no, there's nothing, they're not paying you anything anymore. That's exactly right. There's it's no charge. Pro- it's a promise it's, to pay nothing. It's a promise to pay, but the promise will not be kept by the guy who issued the note. It will never be charged off against the account of the federal government and or the Federal Reserve. It will be redeemed by some poor sap out here. I will receive $10,000 from the government. I'm not paid until I give ten grand to somebody. The $10,000 goes to somebody for their pickup truck or whatever. And, and, there's, no, and there's no time on it either yep. when when is this due because the old one said on demand these say nothing there is no on demand <laughs> demand is... all you want you're getting nothing yeah that's right you, you know, know so if you look at the ucc and then look at your federal reserve note you'll find out that it doesn't rise to the level of being legally a note yeah which right. is like, wow, okay, what, what Which is, is really what? going on? This here? is just another example of the same idea that animated the subprime mortgages, the liar's loans. This is the same thing. They're just lying, oh, we'll redeem this. No, you won't. Well, okay, we'll let the American people redeem it. The American people are sureties for the government and or the Federal Reserve. We redeem it with our work. We redeem their notes. It's like you. I'm going to write a check for $10,000 to buy a pickup truck, and it's going to be charged to you. I don't have to pay that ten grand. Government doesn't have to pay the $1, the $10, the $10,000. It's not charged to their account. But we, the dummies, pick it up, and we are subsidizing government, and in doing so, we're allowing government to grow by leaps and bounds. We are ultimately probably subsidizing with at least the foundation for the new world order. And we've heard references to this where people talk about, they say, well, the dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the American people. <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's true. It's true. As long as you people are willing to accept, as long as you're willing to trade your 
blood, sweat, and tears and private property for these worthless pieces of paper, the worthless pieces of paper are perceived to have value that isn't really there. You're making the payment on the government debt. You don't like government? Is it drawing too big? What are you doing using Federal Reserve notes? Well, full faith and credit must be the old-fashioned way of saying confidence. Yeah. Maybe, you know, because they're always talking about, well, consumer confidence, and this is confidence, and that's confidence, and, that, you know... Um, you know the, another unit, another term for it? Mm-mm. Ignorance. Yeah, well... Yeah. yeah, the full faith and ignorance yeah. of the American people. Yep. That's what holds this stuff up. Well, and, you know, modern money mechanics produced, uh, published by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, it, it, says, it describes in detail... Exactly that whole deal that, look, these, these have no inherent value except for the confidence. That's exactly the right. people. Which is exactly what I'm talking about. You are redeeming their checks. How rich could you get if you can get some other sap to redeem the checks you write? You could be fabulously wealthy, powerful, rule the world as long as somebody else will redeem your checks because it's never charged to your account. Wasn't it Henry Ford that said if the American people yeah. figured out what the banking system was like, they'd all be dead or something? Yeah. Oh, well, he said there'd be a revolution in the morning. Yeah, well, I think he'd probably be right because... Yeah, I understand. And it's also full faith and credit equals full faith and ignorance. Yeah. yeah it's, uh... We'd be dumb. Well, yeah, we are. You know, you talked about you view government as your enemy. Yeah, I do. I agree with you 100%, and so did the founding fathers. The genius of the American Constitution is that it's an anti-government document. They did everything they knew how to do in order to protect us from government. They gave us elections every two years. They, uh, they gave us the First Amendment freedom of press and freedom of speech, and freedoms of religion, which allow us to expose government corruption. Um, They gave us rights and rights and rights and division of powers and checks and balances. Every bit of that Constitution was designed to protect the people from the government. The Founding Fathers absolutely agreed that the government was the principal enemy, and it is. Oh, yeah, and they wrote other papers about it, describing that it's it's some kind of... uh, a uh, servant, but a, a fearful master. And that's very evil. Yeah. yeah. You know. Government like fire, Washington. He said a government like fire is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Yeah, they're not, that, these are not glowing, uh, you know. Mm. <laughs> they knew you know, it was a necessary evil, government. but just the same. The American people have forgotten all that if they've ever even heard it. And they don't understand that it is un-American to trust the government. If you're going to be a good American, if you accept the argument that a good American is someone who lives in harmony with the fundamental principles of the Constitution, then a good American is one who distrusts the government. Insofar as you fall for the crapola that the government is here to help you, you are dumb. You are stupid. You are one of the people who are helping to destroy this nation by extending your trust to the government. Well, and you, you've got an article here that you sent uh, that kind of speaks to that in, in one incident about the police having no duty to protect the general yeah. public. You know, most people... Now, a lot of listeners to this network might know this because I'm sure they've heard it before, but... The mass of people out there, the general 
public has no idea. They do believe the police are supposed to be protecting them. Now, they know they're probably not, but they think they're supposed to protect and serve. This is some, you know, propaganda that they've been fed, but this is not the law. You know, it's not the way it really is. There's the law, though. That, what, that they have? The the police, they will perhaps, you'll hear them say, we serve and protect. You may even see that motto on the side of their cars. All right? But the question is, we serve and protect who? Well, yeah. Who does the do the police serve and protect? And the Supreme Court is exactly right. The police have no duty to protect the general public. Why? Uh, because maybe that's one of the rights reserved to the people. No, not exactly. I, my my take on it is this: I know that every employee has a fiduciary obligation to serve his the best interests of his employer. In the the employee-employer relationship, the employer is always the beneficiary and the employee is the fiduciary. There was a time when we had police departments that were employed by the people. The police are no longer employed by the people. They're employed by, by private municipalities. Their business, they serve and protect, all right. They serve and protect the government. They serve and protect their employer. And part of the evidence that that you don't employ the police is that they're not being paid in gold and silver anymore, which is the people's money. They're being paid in some other currency, and they are employed by corporations. Their duty is to serve and protect the, their employer, the corporation, rather than the rather than the American people. And the court comes out with a ruling, and this goes back to 2013 when this report was actually produced, but nevertheless, the Supreme Court uh, has uh, just ruled, yeah, the, the cops have no duty to serve and protect the people. Well, just ruled again. They've yeah. ruled over and over again. You know, this is not new. They They've done this. This is... It just, you know, somebody... Got a new case. Took a new, uh, you know. Well, how long do you? Su- I, I, how long do you suppose it's been going on? Well, they they the court has kept this stance for over thirty yeah, years. Yeah, that's what they say here. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Thirty years would take us back to when? Nineteen eighty-five. Yeah, yeah. Which 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 is fourteen years after we went completely off the gold standard with internationally with foreign held dollars mm. and we've been off the gold standard in this country since thirty three, silver since sixty eight. We have a pure fiat currency. The cops haven't been employed by the public for thirty, forty years. It's part of the reason we have this damn police state. They don't have any duty to protect us. We are no longer their employers. In my opinion, that's my explanation. I won't tell you it's God's truth, but I think it's. I think if that's not the explanation, it's one of the explanations as to why the court has sat back and said, "No, you don't have a duty to protect the general public. Public is not paying you. They are not your employee, so you don't have any duty to serve them." Well, it makes sense, and you've got to wonder. I, I'd be interested to. And I don't know that they have gone into any explanation. You know, people presume that the Supreme Court and all their infinite knowledge will say, well, we're coming up with this and this is why. 
Uh, well, it doesn't always work that way because, you know, a lot of times they don't explain themselves, and when, sometimes when they do, it doesn't make much sense anyway. you got to be able to read between the lines. I'd like to have a copy of the case, which I could get, and more importantly, and I'd like to trace it all the way back if this has been going on for at least 30 years, I'd like to see particularly the first case mm-hmm. where they began to say that the cops have no duty to protect the general public. Um, I'd like to see that first case because there's where you'll find the hints. They won't come out right out and say what's going on here. You'll have to read between the lines. I mean, you'll have to be... <laughs> it's like reading tea leaves or something like that. It's reading palm. Looking for the invisible palmist, ink. Palmist or whatever they call them. <laughs> holding a lighter under the paper to make the invisible yeah. ink turn brown. Yeah, uh, you know, something black. like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you've got to be very shrewd to read this. I'd like to have time and inclination to read that case. I don't know if I'm going to get to it. I'm not going to bet on it. But it's one of them I'd like to read because it would tell you a lot if you could fully understand what's going on in that case. And there's going to be a line or two in that case that will ultimately tell you this is why. But it won't be obvious. You'll have to read that thing and really know what you're looking at. You won't pick it up with just mere English. You're going to have to understand some legalese and be able to, and then you can say, oh, that's why they're doing it. And it's part of the reason why we're in this police state right now. The police don't serve you and me. We are intended, we as sureties for the government are expected to pay the government's bills. We're the livestock from their perspective. They're working for the government. They're, the police are the knee breakers for the mob that runs this country. Well, and on the, uh, on the positive side, though, is there any real legal authority for that? Or is it just a presumption that we haven't rebutted? Wait, what? what that we're surety. Uh, that we're the surety for you. You know, whatever you want to do, we're, well, we're, we're here to pay bills. If you want to get paid for that, if if I send you a check for ten grand, and you want to redeem that check, you're not going to redeem it. If I send you ten thousand dollars in cash, that was that's a better example. If you want to redeem that ten thousand dollars in cash, you're not going to redeem it from the Federal Reserve and or the federal government. The only way you get you redeem it in 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 the sense of receiving a physical payment. A payment in a physical form, not a promise to pay a real payment. You have to get something physical to get a payment. Other than that, if all you got is paper, you have a promise to pay. That's not a payment. Want to get paid? You're going to get paid by some guy down the street who's going to give you his truck, pickup truck, his bass boat, whatever, for $10,000. Now you've been paid. Well, what about him? Now he's got the $10,000. How does he get paid? Well, he gives it to some other idiot. <laughs> well, you know what it ends I mean, up being. As long as we don't run out of fools. Or run out of you know what it what it you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of musical chairs. As long as we don't run out of chairs, old maid, things fine. You know, the old maid analogy might work better. I don't know what happens to the last guy holding that note, but <laughs> he doesn't get paid. The whole thing is sure. insane. The whole thing is just insane. It's part of what's happened. They've shipped these pieces of paper overseas. And in doing so, they've sent our debt instruments. People are treating our debt as if it's wealth. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, An ounce of gold is an asset. 
A promise to pay an ounce of gold is nothing but an IOU. You haven't been paid until you get the gold in your hand. But, you know, I, I do think there's some value in that whole, you know, and if you end up in a in, in a, some sort of government interaction by letting them know, hey, you know what, I don't agree to be surety. Oh, you I know, agree. I'm not the fiduciary I, in this. Uh, I know? agree. I think it's it's something I'm reading up on. I've just picked up on this in the last week and realized what I was talking about earlier, about how you and I are redeeming the government's debt instruments by giving our by trading our life, our labor, our energy, our private property. We give it, somebody gives me a $100 bill, I'm giving them something real. Not the government's not doing it, I'm doing it. All right? I'm making good on the government's debt. I begin to understand this is key to the system we are dealing with right now. They presume us to be sureties, and if you can walk out from under being a surety, if you can avoid that, I think you can avoid a whole bunch of government regulation. How would you avoid being a surety? Well, I don't know. I... Well, I've been looking into it a little bit, and it turns out that in order to be under the statute of frauds that goes back to 1677 in England, and under the statute of frauds under the laws of Texas, which goes back to about 1967, if I recall correctly. They started it up in Texas, the statute of frauds. There are some documents and relationships that must be, that can only be proven with the existence of a signed, written contract. Suretyship is one of them. Insofar as the government presumes that you are a surety, if you say, look, I need to show me the contract, I deny the existence of any contract. I have not voluntarily and knowingly agreed to be a surety for the government. If you demand to see the contract and they can't produce it, and they proceed with the case, it's arguable that they're subject to civil and maybe criminal liability for fraud. But if you don't bring this up, oh yeah, well, it's just proceed. They just proceed. Okay, we got this guy. Well, huh? and they'll tell you in their rules. We presume all these things, and uh, yeah. and there's much more too. You know, uh -huh. and they tell yeah. you. I understand. One of the ways that I've been I've been trying to stay away from being a fiduciary. Mm -hmm. And I signed my documents at arm's length above my signature. At arm's length indicates that I represent no one. All right? And it indicates that I am not involved and absolutely not involved in a trust relationship. I'm not signing as representative for a third party. I'm signing only as myself. And at least the implication is that I'm signing there in the form of a contract, but I'm not signing in a fiduciary relationship at arm's length. That's for sure. Maybe a contract, but for sure not an equitable relationship, not a fiduciary. I think at arm's length may also prevent the presumption that I'm acting in the capacity of a surety. If it's saying at arm's length, and you can look this up in Black's Law Dictionary, if you use that disclaimer above your signature and you're saying, I'm not, a I'm, I'm not acting for anyone else. Well, a surety always acts for someone else. The surety is the one somebody else is going into debt. Somebody else owes you $10,000. Government owes you $10,000, Frank. How do I know? Because you've got $10,000 in cash. But the government's not going to redeem the debt. What do you do then? 
you go to the surety and try to collect that of him. Mm. The surety is the one who's guaranteeing the original debtor will pay the debt. And if he doesn't, you, your recourse is to the surety. That's the guy across the street with the bass boat. Kind of like, uh, like a kid going to get a car loan and having mom and dad co-sign? Yeah, uh, kind of like that. Yeah, the co-signer, the co-signer sits in a position analogous to that of a surety. They may be an actual surety. That may be, the, that may be a correct description for the co-signer. But that's what it comes down to. And what's interesting about it is if you get into a a surety relationship, from what I've been able to read in the last week or so, the the guy who, let me see, the, the guy who received the money, who is owed the debt, the creditor, he doesn't even have to go after the real debtor in the first place. He can just go after the surety. And then... I suspect, I haven't verified this yet, I'm trying to think of the term, it's, I can't think of the term, it's not rehypothecation, I can't think of the term right now, and I probably won't before the program, we've run out of time here, but you have a right of, I want to say something like reprobation, that's not the term, I know it's not, but it's something like that, just reading it, I think then you have a right to chase the debt from the original, from the real debtor, which would be the government in this analogy. But the point is, if I'm, somebody can sue me for the government's debt. They don't even have to try to get the money out of the government. If I'm the surety, I can be held liable, all right, without even going to the original debtor. They can just come after me in the first place, and then it's up to me to go back after the government and try to recollect or try to collect whatever I paid out on the government's behalf. Now, this is an exciting possibility mm-hmm. yeah. because it's similar to some of these theories they've had in the past where they have a treasury direct account, the rest of it, which I've usually dismissed as wishful thinking. But maybe, maybe there's some. But the critical point from my perspective. Well, you know, on that. that point, that... Surety, surety, surety. If you're not a surety, I think you can stay out from under. You know that whole Treasury Direct thing. The I I looked a lot into that, and the one thing that I I believe something like that exists. Yep. But you know, people have always just it's like picking dates. You know, people always got well. There's this much in it. Everybody's got this many millions in it, and everybody's yeah, got yeah, well. Yeah. I don't know how anybody could ever know that, and it's probably changing all the time, and. And and it could be nothing. It could just be existing, you know, because what's, I mean, what is actually tangible in our monetary system? Nothing. You know, debt, debt, that's it. Everything's yep. based on debt. So what would, be in, my, what would be in my treasury promises. account? That's all debt is, is promises. Yeah, what would promises be in my treasury account which then? Which is exactly what happens when you go to the Federal Reserve and say, I got, I got a $100 Federal Reserve note and I want to redeem it. And what do they do? They give you a newer, crisper $100 yep. bill. You have exchanged an old promise to pay for a new promise to pay. Yeah. But all you get is a promise to pay. You get one debt incurs another debt. Right? We are paying off existing debt with future debt. And it truly is a fraud because it is oh, not legally... Terrible, a, terrible, terrible. And on its face, because it is not legally a note. And it says it's a note right on it, but it's yeah. not. Not not according to the law. If I tried to write a note like that, I'd go to prison. Uh-huh. You know, and, and so would anybody listening out there. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you're a Federal Reserve banker and then, you know, that doesn't apply to you, but... Uh, it, it is not a note. 
You know, you, you, you look and go, well, okay, I want to write a note. Where do I find it? I go to the UCC. Here's the rules. You follow the rules. Now you have a note. Well, they didn't follow the rules. Yeah. Fraud. Yeah, that would be a fraud because they're saying right on it that it's a note. When, no, it isn't really. But, hey, it's just added to the fraud list. Well, it's, that's one of the ways you get out. You can allegedly go after this surety ship. If they don't have a contract with your signature on it, where you have agreed voluntarily and knowingly to act as surety, they can't treat you as one. But they can presume you to be one. Yep. And if you don't object, guess what? You're going to get hooked on that on that on that basis, and you're going to be the most bewildered person in the courtroom when you walk out and say, "What the hell happened there? I just got clipped for a hundred thousand dollars, and I have no idea why." Well, guess what? I think. The answer is because you were foolish enough and ignorant enough to be the government's surety. Yeah, I think there's something to it. I think there is, too. We'll do more of this in the future weeks. Um, something maybe next Tuesday we'll talk more about the surety. I'll have more research at that time, and I'll even remember the, I'll even remember the term I was trying to think of earlier in the program. In the meantime, we are out of time. I want to thank you for being co-host, Frank. Thanks, and I'll thank all of you folks for uh, listening. And we will be back next Tuesday. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you and me and Frank. And we'll see you in uh, a week. Good night. The summer's gone. And all the flowers dying. Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family.
right. Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Tuesday, September 8, 2015. It's about nine and a half minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. If you'd like to call in, 800-932-1980, 800-932-1980. You can call in, get on the air, or you can go to the chat room located at our uh website theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com you'll see the chat link click it follow the instructions it's real easy you can also go and uh you can contact me directly through yahoo instant messenger screen name is avrn talk all right uh let me do this, and then I'll get right with you. All right. Okay. Let's see. Let's get to some things and stuff. All right. We got to go over here. I got a big pile of things over here. Oh, yeah. I was just looking at some money pictures there. Well, not really money, but Federal Reserve notes anyway. All right. Let's get... uh. If I can get anything to open here, that'd be good. I don't know. I have a lot of trouble with uh, flash or shockwave flash. It seems to crash a lot. I don't know if you have that problem, but I do. Anyway, uh, let's see here. Yeah, I'm trying to use I, I had some trouble with Firefox, so I'm trying to use Chrome. It's not it doesn't seem to be working very well. La 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 let's just wait. Oh yeah, it's uh anyway. I hope you all did listen to the uh previous show, the American uh Independence Hour. I co hosted with Alfred Adask. And I thought we had some very interesting things, you know, surety and, uh, you know, being the fiduciary and things like that. Really important, folks. It it might sound like legal blah, blah, blah to a lot of you, but there are presumptions going on, okay? And, And all you have to do is go look in your state statutes wherever you find your, uh, rules of your court, your uh, civil procedures. Go look there and look under presumptions. You're going to find out a bunch of presumptions that they presume. They don't tell you, but they presume these things when you walk in. For instance, one of the ones I remember off the top of my head is that the police acted properly. They presumed this. Okay? So if you don't specifically say the police, I am making the claim that the police did not act properly. I'm rebutting that presumption that they acted properly. They did not act properly. Well, now he's going to have to, the cop is going to have to demonstrate that he did act properly and not just have it be a presumption. All right. This is important, folks. This this applies to traffic tickets. This applies to everything. You know, you wonder why. I did. I go into a traffic court. So 
there's the cop and there's me. There's no witnesses. There's nobody but the cop, right? Well, I go in knowing, well, I'm presumed innocent until I've proven guilty, right? Well, yeah, okay, but that's not the only thing presumed. That's a general presumption. There's specific presumptions that you got to deal with. For instance, if they're believing, well, the cop always acted properly, the cop is being truthful. If these are presumptions they're having... Well, when the cop says, you did this and you did that, blah, 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 and you go, no, I didn't, and you can't prove it, and that's not proof just because you say so, you got any witnesses, blah, 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 blah. Nope, guilty, pay your fine. You know, I mean, I wonder, uh, for years, I wait a minute. If I'm presumed innocent until proven guilty, how come his word counts for more than mine? Well, because now I come to find out that one of the reasons it possibly could be that way is because when the cop walks in there, it is just presumed that he's telling the truth, that he acted properly, that everything he says is good, and, uh, you know, this is all just presumed. And if I don't rebut those presumptions, they're accepted. Well, if he's telling the truth and he's acting properly... Well, pulling me over was the right thing to do because what he's saying is truthful and I must be lying. Because, see, if he's saying something and I'm saying something different and the court is just presuming that he's telling the truth, then I must be lying and I'm guilty. And that's how it goes in traffic court generally. You know, and so the legal blah, 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 you know, turns into reality when you recognize, well, wait a minute, this is how it really works in everyday things that happen to people all the time. Traffic tickets? Come on. Is there anybody listening who has never gotten a traffic ticket? Anyway. So here's something really unrelated, but just, <laughs> just uh, you know, We know the government spies on us, right? And they want to give us a complete surveillance state sort of experience going on, right? But how far does it go? You know, I mean, how far does it really go? Well, how about this? How about a baby seat for your car that spies on you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A baby seat. You know, because you got to have baby seats now. They're, they're, hey, they are required. Okay. This goes on. Spend enough time investigating a global surveillance industry, and you'll come to realize that reality is far stranger than fiction. A previous motherboard investigation into the cache of documents leaked after the hack of a uh, hacking team revealed a huge network of companies reselling spyware around the world. But the Italian firm, which makes the government governmental hacking suite remote-controlled system, is barely a drop in that bucket of the massive market for invasive and often weird surveillance technology. Consider the comically creepy baby seat. It's a video surveillance device disguised to look like a baby's car seat. According to its brochure, baby seat features a hidden camera with full pan, tilt, and zoom capability, which can be remotely viewed and controlled in real time via GSM mobile internet connection and records to a discreetly mounted compact 
flashcard. Wow, is this great or what? Now, who might get these? Well, I suppose you could end up inadvertently buying one at Walmart or something. But what's more uh, apt to be happening? Well, your welfare mom don't have the money. Okay, we'll give you a baby seat for free. Yeah, the baby seat's just one of many products being offered by various surveillance vendors to the government of Colombia. It's sold by LMW Electronics, an obscure British company that was acquired in 2012 by another UK surveillance firm, Digital Barriers. According to Digital Barriers' website, LMW provides advanced video capture and transmission technology capabilities to the international law enforcement and military markets, with products including video cameras, outstations, vehicle and body-worn equipment, and controller units. The baby seat is just one of the many products being offered by various surveillance vendors to the government of Colombia. The report reveals about a dozen foreign firms and local resellers working together to supply supply Colombian police and military with everything from fiber optic cable taps to network monitoring software to more old school tactical spy tech like covert recording devices. One of the company's more interesting suppliers is Dreamhammer. Yeah, a California-based company that develops software for military drones and sells it to Colombian government in collaboration with a local partner, Emerging Technologies Corporation. The government also seems to be a big fan of IMSI catchers, the mass surveillance devices better known in the U.S. as stingrays that track phones and intercept calls and texts by uh, posing as cell phone towers. Well, folks, you know, this is mostly about what Colombia is buying. But, you know, if you think, what, Colombia is buying it, but the United States is not, that the United States would never do anything like that, that the United States would never provide baby seats to welfare mothers so they can put them under surveillance, especially if they thought that their boyfriend that, of course, doesn't live at the house is some kind of drug dealer or terrorist or something. How about this then? How about this is the headline? Police are reading your bank and debit card balances without a warrant. This is happening here. Okay, this is not Columbia. Thanks to DHS's own research and development department, if you're arrested, cops can now read your bank balance. Police are now able to read our bank and credit card, debit cards, retail gift cards, library cards, hotel key cards, even magnetic strip uh, metro all cards instantly. Did you catch that? Police will even know the balance of your commuter train bus cards, all without a warrant. DHS and Technology Directorate's Electronic Recovery and Access to Data, ERAD, prepaid card reader is now being used to read every magnetic stripped card. The ERAD prepaid card reader is a small handheld device that uses wireless connectivity to allow law enforcement officers in the field to check the balance of cards. This allows for identification of suspicious prepaid cards and the ability to put a temporary hold on the linked funds until a full investigation can be completed. 
Okay, so a cop pulls you over, reads your card, and freezes your account until a complete investigation can be completed. Wow. Really? Once you're arrested, if you're carrying a suspicious credit or debit card, police can put a temporary hold on your account, which begs the question, how the hell can you bail yourself out if they've frozen your account? Ooh, you can't. And what's to stop a prosecutor or a judge from demanding you pay a certain amount in fines or bail? After all, they know exactly how much money you got in your bank account. Wow, is this fun or what? Hmm? The project, developed by DHS Science and Technology Directorate. Directorate? Does that sound American to you? I, I mean, really, do we have directorates? Homeland Security Directorate? Isn't this sounding a little Soviet to you folks, or, or is it just me? First responder group began in March 2012, the S&T is led by the Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Science and Technology. According to DHS, since ERAD was put into the field testing, police have seized approximately $1 million in suspicious bank cards. The prepaid card reader has generated a lot of interest from our state local enforcement agency partners. And there is a growing demand by these agencies for use of this technology by their personnel. It provides a unique tool for when they encounter suspect cards with magnetic strips during the performance of their duties. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, isn't there something, some sort of protection in the Constitution about, uh, oh, your, what, uh, personal effects and such? Wouldn't a debit card or a credit card be considered that? And what is the point of all these passwords and, and, and pins and all this other crap that, oh, my bank loves me so much that they're, you know, looking out for my security? How exactly is this thing bypassing all that? You see, it would have to be done voluntarily by the banks. They have to be giving up this information to the to this electronic device. Let's see, is this it? This is Section 9 of Article 1. No law shall violate, uh, violate the right of the people to be secure. Oh, yes, this would do it. And there's something very similar in the United States Constitution. But here in the state of Oregon, it's Article 1, Section 9. No law shall violate the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. Against unreasonable search or seizure, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. You see, particular is very specific. It's actually more specific than the word specific, particular means exactly. What exactly are you looking for? Where exactly do you expect to find it? Not, uh, well, uh, we're looking for uh, contraband in any house or uh, 
building on the property. Uh, sorry, no, that doesn't qualify as particular. Man. So, does a credit card or a debit card not fall under securing their persons? Because, you know, you do have your wallet on your person, in your pocket. Houses, I guess, wouldn't count on the road. Papers? Now, isn't papers kind of the uh, the old-fashioned electronic device? Well, okay, maybe not. What about effects? That, that kind of covers everything else, doesn't it? So tell me how this is not a violation again. And honestly, folks, I really do think people need to start using their state constitution. If you get pulled into a state court, you really do need to use the state constitution. I believe that, but I could be wrong. Especially, you know, if we're under federal jurisdiction, well then, you know, you know, you need to do a lot of different things. I mean, honestly, between the presumptions and everything else going on, uh you really need to and you know, Al Adas makes the point that, well, you know, what if you're not who you think you are? What if you're a U.S. citizen? What if that means something different than what you think it means? What if you are that and that means you can't be one of the people? Do these rules apply? Do these protections apply to you? What if you are an animal? Does that apply to you? Do those protections apply to you? Because they really do say that they apply to the people. And if the government just presumes that you're not one of the people, you're a man or other animal, which can't be a, me, a, can't be a man made in the image of God, or else it would say man or animal. Not other animal. It's not an accident. Yeah, all word games. But unfortunately, that's what the law is written in, is the is words. And, you know, the law is really what has entrapped the American people far more than guns and prisons and, you know, police brutality and all that. That's all certainly a problem. But a lot more people are affected by words. Most of the people in prison are there because of words. Sure, there's some there because of their actions. There's some there just because of, you know, uh, actions by the police, actions by the judge, injustice by the system. I'm not saying that never happens. It happens more often than it should. But for the most part, most people are in prison because of words. Most people have have confessed in one way or another. Well, anyway... So there you go. So we got baby seats. (laughs) We got baby seats that are going to spy on you. We we got the police running around with this ERAD 
that can read every mag every card that has a magnetic strip in it. You know, I just saw the thing. Um, where was it from Target? They're they're taking that they're putting a chip in the card rather than a magnetic strip. How long until they read those? You know, it, it just, you know, it's the whole thing without a warrant. Without a warrant, wait a minute, what do you mean you're going to go check my bank account? Huh? Do, do you think, do you think that, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson or Patrick Henry or George Washington even, you think any of them would have said, oh, sure, you know, go ahead. You know, search my bank account. You don't need a warrant. You don't need any of that. It's okay, because if I don't do anything wrong, I got nothing to be afraid of, right? Yeah, that's sure. That's what the founding fathers would have said, right? Or or no? Hey, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a bit.
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. foreclosed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com. Or simply call 316-619-4886. Hello, Cash just got back. Look for that place to call the Chicken Shack. Creek. <laughs> 
thing to eat. All good parts of the chicken wants more than sit. You can even get the last part as well. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still September 8, 2015, Tuesday, about 838, and almost 839. 800-932-1980. You can call in. You can go to the chat room at theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. You can just click it and go on in there. And uh can also... Instant message me through Yahoo, and uh, the screen name is AVRN Talk. All right, there you go. There it is. There you have it. Oh, yes, the the, uh, songs. Uh, Nobody guessed the first one right. It was uh, Rock Crazy Baby is the name of the song. I've played it before. It's by Art Adams. And then the Chicken Shack Boogie. Now, this has been done by uh, quite a few people. This version here is by Amos Milburn. So there you go. To me, room zero. We had somebody just leave the room to go to the Chicken Shack, I think. Oh, but they came back. Well, there you go. Anyhow, there you have it. There you go. That's how easy it is to play. You just guess and uh or not guess anyway <laughs> all right oh where was i here oh no we're not gonna do that just right now how about this you know this uh u.n thing is coming up right 2030 well that's their new agenda they're kind of throwing in the can 20 uh agenda 21 you've heard of that you see, people have started over the years to realize that Agenda 21 is not some crazy conspiracy theory by a bunch of tinfoil hat-wearing lunatics making stuff up. It's an actual United Nations agenda. 
Well, it wasn't ambitious enough for the United Nations. So, they're coming up with something new. It's their 2030 agenda, which is far more ambitious. This is what they're going to be doing when the Pope and Putin and the head of China and the head of Saudi Arabia and Obama are all going to be at the United Nations. Yeah, for this big deal. I wonder what the big deal is, really. But, I've been telling you that they are using words something like sustainable development. They always do, but you got to understand what that means. And it's not just because I say it's what it means. Again, go look up some United Nations documents on the United Nations site or some other you know, sites on the, uh, on the Internet that house United Nations documents. But you might think they're a fraud, so go straight to the U.N. website, look up some documents. Now, you can look up Agenda 21, you can look up some of these other well-known ones, but start doing a search about things like population control, overpopulation, sustainable development. Look up those terms, look up papers that are written about that, and you will find out some disturbing things. Meaning, sustainable development means about three-quarter of the people on this planet, in their idea, needs to go away. That's right. You need to just disappear because you're not sustainable. Because we've heard it over and over again. Oh, the big problem is there's just too many people. There's just too many people. I mean, you even got shills like uh, William Shatner. And hey, I like William Shatner as an actor. I don't think much of him as a person. Uh, at least from what I've read, I've never met him, but hey, uh, from what I've read, I don't think much of him as a person. Uh, you know, I liked him as Kirk, but hey, that's just TV. You know, this is something he said, there's just too many damn people. Well, oh really? Well, this is not him. I mean, you've got Bill Gates, you've got big leaders, billionaires saying all the same thing. Too many people, too many people. All these people are not, as they like to say, sustainable. Well, no. It's not sustainable if they want everything. Now, we keep talking about, well, uh, you know, wealth disparity. Disparity. The gap between the wealthy and the poor. Well, what, what do you think it's about? It's about the good old days, meaning the dark ages where, you know... Uh, the royalty lives up in the castle on the hill, and all the little serfs on the land, they only exist to support the king, and they're only left with enough just barely to su survive. You know, 25% of Europe died during the Dark Ages from the plague, and that wasn't sustainable, because they didn't. They let most of the serfs die on the land. Because they took everything they grew. Now, here's this uh, about eugenics. And I'll read this because I, I pretty much agree with the beginning part here. It's a little bit of a lead-in, but so what? Let's suppose the elite scum working to ruin and control our lives and the planet are in some fashion real people to some extent. I know, a stretch, but let's try 
So how can they perpetrate such horrors on humanity? How could such madness be justified in the minds of men, however psychopathic? Actually, it's easy. For self-promotion, preservation, and Machiavellian power, they've convinced themselves that they are perpetrating what they are perpetrating is the right thing to do. And what's their fundamental pseudoscientific tenet for mass murder? Eugenics. Eliminating unwanted humanity for some good that they perceive as right. Everything they think and believe is a fabricated bastardization and reversal of any real truth. But, in their minds, they've decided this inhuman, illuminous takeover makes sense especially with their fat cheeks being firmly ensconced in the seats of power. Oh, the vestiges of their human conscience may give, them some, may give some of them a nudge in some cases, but it's been shut down almost completely for almost all of them. It has to be. You can't have empathy and wreak such a death-dealing havoc on nature and humanity. Otherwise... If you've ever known or observed a psychopathic liar, this ca uh, cauterized mindset is their way of life. Politicians do it without the slightest compunction. To them, it's part of the job description for ruling the unwashed masses. How is it justified logically? The old necessary evil rules, the greater good, as in the justification for 9-11 and a myriad of other dystopian, death-dealing, manipulative actions over the centuries. Uh, the even more repulsive aspect is that they smugly revel in this ugliness, thinking they're good guys. Convincing the cattle to die. Think about it. What a, what a slam dunk for world domination to so twist perception to where humanity is the problem that needs to be curtailed by draconian controls while being systematically exterminated like a pest infestation. Now, isn't this the way what we would call liberals, but they're really global, global elitists is really what they are. But isn't this what we hear? Man is a cancer on the earth. He's an infestation, right? Right, right. Well, where does that come from, folks? Now, you can laugh and you can say, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, Jewish fables or whatever you want to say. But the fact of the matter is that Satan. Now, do I say, well, we should chase down Satan? That's not my job. I can't do anything about Satan. All I can do is about these people, the people that I can identify and I can't even identify all of them. I can identify hardly any of them. But I can identify at least 535 of them. And you can identify, I don't know who's all in the General Assembly, but you can identify them. You can identify these people. And yeah, they might be just puppets having their string pulled by somebody else. And everybody thinks, well, you've got to get the head off the snake. You've got to go after the puppeteer. You can't waste your time with the puppets. Well, i got news for you. Without puppets, puppeteers ain't got a lot of power, do they? Hello? Anyway... You hear a lot about this. So this is not anybody being conspiratorial or paranoid uh, that they're out to get us. Because they, they're not out to get us. They're out to kill us, okay? They're out to get rid of us. 
being engineered wars, poverty, and food shortages, drugging, corrupted food and water, dumbed-down information and media, or injecting toxins into our body. It's all fair game to them, and it's all happening, folks. Eugenics is the tie that binds, the glue that holds all the other lies conveniently together, and it takes the sting out of the outright mass murder. For them... It's a cleansing and preparation for their desired sanitized world to come in. Just look at how Agenda 21 and other controls are perpetrated via things like climate change and CO2 fabrications. Sure, we're in the throes of massive climate extremes for many reasons, many of them geoengineered. But to blame it on cattle flatulence and even human breathing must be some kind of macabre inside joke. Bottom line is they're planning a great culling of the herd and need our permission. We've read about it for decades in their elitist writings, and this is how they justify it and hope to convince as much as possible of the same. That's the alert. And this upcoming UN Sustainability Conference is the capstone. This is why Obama is jumping through these Alaska climate change shenanigans disgustingly promoting by mainstream media. It's a lead-in. Remember, not waking up and saying no is ultimately humanity's... uh, is ultimately humanity's agreement. By your silence, you agree. Okay? By your silence, you consent. This is a maxim of law. Okay? This is more important than ignorance of the law is no defense. See, because that's not even God's law. As a matter of fact, that's anti-God's law. Because in God's law, ignorance of the law is a defense. But not in man's law. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. And by your silence, you consent. In a real world, hey, if I say nothing, that means nothing. I don't consent, I don't agree, I don't disagree, I'm not concerned about what you have to say or what you're doing. I want no part of you. That's what it should mean, and that's what it does mean, but not in their world. It means you consent. And that's why when you go to court, they've decided, well, we have all these presumptions. We told you about them. They're in the law. Oh, you didn't read the law? Well, remember, ignorance of the law is no defense, so you didn't know about it, but they exist. So we're going to presume all these things, and you're not going to sit there and rebut them because you don't know about them, and therefore you agree to everything we say. Off to jail with you. Well, let's see here. I'm not going to be able to get through all this, I don't think, but a little background. As eugenics called the self-direction of human evolution grew out of its inception in the 1800s, It was considered the harmonious result of all branches of science. The U.S. was the first to implement eugenics programs as early as 1908, and it gained a lot of popularity and traction. You see, this is what Margaret Sanger complained about, what's going to come up next. What stopped it in its tracks, at least in public opinion, was the Nazi implementation of eugenics during World War II, to the obvious horror of all. However, it was uh, clearly backed by American interests and exaggerated for Zionist propaganda usage. And Margaret Sanger was complaining that, hey, our eugenics programs are falling behind. The Nazis are, 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 
leaping ahead of us. This is bad. We got to catch up. Blah, 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 blah. You know, Margaret Sanger, the one who founded Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Anyway, this would later turn out to be the amazingly cunning pre-planned propaganda tool as we discussed below. But now look how this eugenics campaign has been revived and is currently perpetrated. With innocuous sounding names like Planned Parenthood to the UN's dastardly Agenda 21, the mass hive mind sees these measures as progress. While knowing little to nothing about the extensive anti-human, never mind anti-freedom measures being foisted upon them. These are the mindless supporters of these things that he's talking about. And it's not just genetic culling. It's mass population reduction. An elitist think tank called the Club of Rome helped set the stage for this last push to demonize humanity with the contrived invention of militant, invasive environmentalism. This appeared around the same time as the widely sensationalized population bomb concept. While real ecology and conscious conservatism make common sense, this environmental agenda was created with the specific intention to foist massive controls over human activity that were now at the credulous point of having to pay a literal carbon tax is a total giveaway as to their fraudulent intentions. Yet, <laughs> few are catching on, huh? And again, like the lie of human-caused global warming, they voice such nonsense with the intent that we should feel guilty for being alive, to such an extent that even our breath is supposedly killing the planet. But they just keep pushing their agenda through the media, regardless of real scientific data to the contrary. They don't care. They've got the talking heads to do their, uh, you know, science for them. While humanity doesn't share the beastal mindset of the elites and their occult-driven agenda, these pounding programs wear on the people. Over time, the continued onslaught of these nonsensical anti-truths start to wear a groove in the mass mind. The psychotrauma tool of choice, cognitive dissidence. Resistance subsides, uh, subsides as seemingly contrary understandings in this case. I'm a sovereign human being who deserves life and freedom. Versus I'm a parasitic organism killing my host planet and need to be eradicated. That's what it boils down to, folks. That's the paradigm shift that's being foisted upon society through mass media manipulation mind control and what gets synthesized in the mind to reconcile the two i guess they know what they're doing gee we are bad and something needs to be done it really doesn't make sense so the overlord causes a shutdown and back to the tv and the ball game they go acquiescing and approving the agenda by purely willing ignorant apathy once again the intended solution being foisted on society gains traction over and over they do this, folks, generation after generation, until it becomes generational. And those daring to oppose this new status quo, resistance and criticism has now been cleverly engineered to be tantamount to terrorism. Well, it ain't over. While the arrogant intellectual roots of modern eugenics seem to escape mainstream consciousness, obvious forms of racism and uh, genocidal extermination as, opposed, uh, as exposed in the repeated Gaza 
genocides have been much more evident that the two are instinct in, intrinsically connected takes one to the much deeper understanding of what's really going on on this planet. The elimination of more conscious and rooted indigenous forms of humanity and the subjugation of the remaining human race and its ultimate manipulation into a non-questioning, subservient form actually loving its enslavement. How far are we from that? Doesn't seem that far. Yep, just like the predictive programming evidenced in literature and filmmaking for centuries. The Zionist mindset with its Kabbalist occult sense of Supremism is a clear example of justified extermination of lesser beings. An incredible in-your-face example that the world turns a blind eye to. Instead, they fall for the big lie created by the engineered German Holocaust that the perpetrators of this current extermination of their inferiors as manifested in the millions of killed and displaced Palestinians is somehow because the killers are potential victims. That's how they work. Manipulate history and pound the manipulated message home via propaganda. It's really that simple. Okay? This goes on quite a ways, but I think you get the gist of the matter, folks. Okay? I think you get the gist of the matter. You're being manipulated. You're being zoomed here. They're lying to you. Listen. Normally, if you say everything, you know, and everybody, you're usually always wrong. And and I'm not saying this is a 100% true statement, but you know what? You should embrace it anyway. And you know why? Because you're better safe than sorry, and you'll do a lot better by embracing this next statement rather than the opposing statement. The statement is... Everything they say is a lie. Don't believe anything they say. Everything they tell you is true is a lie. And probably the exact opposite is really the truth. That is something you should keep in mind with mainstream media or any politician anywhere. All the time. And yeah, sometimes you're going to be wrong and they're going to tell the truth. And oh boy, well, big deal. That's maybe 1% or 2% of the time. Okay? You'll do a lot better by realizing they're always lying about everything all the time. And you're going to be right like 99% of the time. Maybe 95% of the time. Anyway, I got to go. Time's up. I'll be back again tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening. (laughs) 